Hello and welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast with Matthew Robinson and his gaming group. This is round two, turn two, and our guest today is Dimitri Portnoy. Hello. Actually, our guest today is Trey Alsup. Hello. Actually, our gu- wait, what's going on here, guys? Why are there two of you here? I invited Trey uh, to be a guest on my segment because I couldn't imagine doing it without him. Didn't you trade episodes with Trey? Or didn't Trey trade with you? We did, yes. Oh, that's some hardcore metagaming there, Trey. You've, uh, you traded, and yet you're here. I don't know how it happened. Is it a good thing? I think it's great. I actually like the idea, and I was, I was telling Jesse the other day, I like the idea of, of uh, having more than one of us on every once in a while or a couple times around. I think it's a nice way of getting... We did it you know, with our Avalon episode. We had a bunch of people in, and I think that's fun. And I like the idea of Trey is here for a specific reason, which, we'll, which you'll understand when we get to Dimitri's segment. Um, but I want you to chime in on this whole episode, and especially our review that we're talking about today, because the game we are reviewing today is Teo Tawakan. And I definitely said that perfectly. Yes, you did. Uh, which is a very exciting, maybe maybe my f- a second favorite Euro of last year. Maybe my favorite, or no, this year? Last year? This year. It's one of my favorite uh, it's games it's ever. 18, last year. I don't think I played it till this year, though. Uh, but I guess it did come out at Essen of last year. Um, we, uh, Dimitri, tell us. So Dimitri is the non-gamer. We, I don't have to introduce us every time now. We know. You know Dimitri's the non-gamer. Sure. He's, the, he's, the, he's the person who doesn't love games, but he's here to socialize with I us. I love people. Uh, and to Dimitri's, uh, top 10 episode, once again, our top tens are the round or the, uh, the theme of this round. We're going to be doing a top 10 every episode. Dimitri, what is your top 10? My top 10 is questions I have in general about games. Uh, and they fall into three categories, questions that are just for fun, questions that are serious speculation and questions that delve into things that make me uncomfortable, uh, about gaming, uh, and why I consider myself a non-gamer. Well, that sounds exciting and terrifying at the same time. And that is why Trey is here today, because Trey is the designer. As we know, I don't have to keep saying it. Trey is the designer, and he's here because he's sort of an expert on answering questions about games, as all of us are. But I think Trey's perspective on this will be uh, more interesting uh, than just my own. Especially since most of my questions have to do with game design. And as I was looking over them earlier, I said, no, that Trey will have a lot to say about this. In addition to Dimitri's questions, which makes me feel like we're at Passover, uh, I am going to also give you a top 10 list in no specific order of games to pull out with non-gamers. Games to bring to the table for people who, much like Dimitri, have no interest in games, but maybe just are there for socialization that aren't going to annoy them or uh, make them want to run out the door and never come back to your house. And I actually like more than half the games on that list. Amazing. Um, We had a contest for the last two weeks and it blew my mind the uh, submissions we got the contest was to tell us about who you game with that's the same thing our podcast does for you we tell you all about who we game with and our gaming group i wanted to hear from our listeners and we got so many entries and I so cr- many wonderful entries i cried three times while reading everybody's entries that is an exact number i didn't write it down but it was easy to remember uh and they were moving they were funny they were I don't know. I, I guess I didn't expect when I put out the bat signal for this for this contest that it would be so emotional. But it make, of course it would be. I mean, people are talking about their friends. They're talking about family members who are with us, who have passed, uh, spouses, friends, uh, children. You know, and many people have been playing with these groups for a long time. So these stories were 
were very powerful. And we are going to announce our three winners today. They already know who they are. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering if you won, you would already know, unfortunately. <laughs> um, Here's the bad news. <laughs> yes. Not you. Uh, I, I want to say a couple of words about judging this because all, all of us in this group are producers and consumers of culture. Tell us how we, how we did the judging for people who don't know. Uh, we read all of the submissions. Uh, we watched uh, the ones that could be watched, listened to the ones that could be listened to, uh, and then each of us had a uh, top three. Uh, we submitted those uh, and... Uh, in cases of a tie, we uh, argued. We had a revote. That's right. And there, one of them was a tie. Two of them tied for the, for the number one position. We will not say who. And one of them, uh, two of them, then tied for third place. And That's we right. Had to do a vote off. Yeah, I, I felt. I mean, it was uh, great reading them. I felt a tremendous amount of kind of pressure or guilt that we could not choose 10. Yeah, that is that when people sort of pour their heart out to you and tell you these amazing stories, you feel awful not selecting them. And, and so just know that if you submitted... Uh, yeah, they know were, that we read it and, and every single one of them was really well thought out and had an impact on us. So just because you weren't one of the top three... And 90% of them at least got one vote. I mean, keep in mind, there's eight yeah. of us doing three votes each. So, I mean, only... I'm just going to say it. Only one of the ones I voted for is in the top three. Please don't judge us too harshly There you go for judging you. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our winners, but we're going to be putting up their information, or their information, <laughs> not their information. We're going to be putting up their submissions on our website and also on our Facebook group. I do recommend you join our Facebook group. We have a lot of people in there. It's really a lot bigger than I thought it would get this quickly. Um, go to Facebook.com. That is the, how you get to Facebook. I don't know why I'm telling you that. And uh, type in Game Brain Podcast. Find the group. Ask for an invitation. I guarantee you we will say yes. It's just Facebook's algorithm. They, you can't just click and join. Uh, so the winners, the first one is Lane Russell. Lane sent in a beautiful hand-drawn illustration of himself and his significant other playing the gallerist. And gallerist, the game, is beautifully drawn as well. I mean, the detail in it, the love between these two, the friendship, the camaraderie, the gamesmanship, it is, it, it is, I mean, this could be the Criterion cover of a Wes Anderson film. Yes, it is a delightful example of outsider art, and it moved me deeply. <laughs> Every time I, I hear outsider art, I think that's sort of like a little bit of a dig, but I, I, <laughs> I think it was a lovely painting and, and, and a very sweet story to go with. Was it, it an example of uh, metagaming harder? The choice of the gallerist seemed perfectly focused I know. for and I getting think, to our hearts. I think it got some votes purely based on the selected game that was drawn with such loving detail. Uh, you can look at this image right now, of course, on our Facebook group or on our website. We'll put them all up there. The second one was uh, made me cry like a little baby, and I read it to my wife, and she cried. And I imagine most people who read this cried at some point because it was really moving. I have a heart of stone, and I yes. wept. Uh, Sean Hallian, or I think he's told me it's Hallian. Sorry, Sean. I'm forgot how you told me how to pronounce it, but you already did. Um, by the way, I asked everybody permission before I said their names or read these, so uh, everybody's down for this. Uh, Sean sent us a wonderful essay about his, uh, his struggles with addiction and uh, how he, uh, he, he suffered an overdose and uh, was lucky to survive and was lucky to be rehabilitated with the help of his friends who were his board gaming group and who before that point were not necessarily very close to him, at least on sort of an emotional help you get through a hard time in your life level. 
but showed up for him after uh, a traumatic experience and were very much involved in helping him recover. And a scientist, Matt, board game group is about people. Yeah, more than games, is. and this is That's the premise a of our podcast. Perfect example of that, and about as perfect and about as heartwarming and inspiring as you could get. I'm going to put up Sean's uh, essay uh, again. Everything will be up on our Facebook group or on our website. Um, but yeah, the part that made me uh, made me weep a bit was that he had, that before his overdose, he and his gaming group had a Gloomhaven session, and that had been going on for a very long time, and. After he uh, overdosed and, and obviously had to leave the group for a while, when he returned, he found out that they had waited for him and that they had not continued the, uh, the Gloomhaven campaign. And I, just, I found that very moving and uh, touching. It's and I'm getting a little emotional talking about it. But it's it was the just, small things. It's the small things that show people care. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's just an act of kindness that was unnecessary but beautiful. And he now works at the board game store. That he played at, and uh, that's also been a part of his rehabilitation. And when I asked him uh, what game store I can call in and give him his hundred dollars to, he said, um, "I'm working there. Just call me." <laughs> so I get to call in and pay him at his store that he works at, which I think is great. Um, but thank you, Sean. That was uh, that was uh, vulnerable and kind of you to share that with us. And um, I hope other people find it useful who may be struggling or, like myself, have had many friends in their lives who did struggle or, 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 or whose lives were lost to addiction. Uh, the next up is... Uh, oh, geez. I'm sorry. I blew it. I blew it at the beginning. Lane Russell did not do the picture. Lane, I, I had their names wrong. Lane Russell is our third winner, who I will talk about now. Andrew Mosher is the one who did the painting. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm not even going to go back and edit that and fix it because it would be way too much work at this point. But Andrew Mosher was the one who did the picture. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, Lane Russell was our winner who submitted something I did not expect to be submitted, which was an entire website. How does one submit an entire website? Well, they create a website and then send us a link to it. And this website... Uh, was similar to our website in, in the fact that it has an explanation about his whole gaming group. But unlike our website, it is wildly funny. And I laughed it's, so many times while reading it. It's filled with dossiers of all uh, his gaming buddies and complaints about them, uh, which seem almost Nabokovian, like pale fire or something <laughs> like that. No, it, you could tell these people are very close because they are fine being quite uh, derogatory towards each other. <laughs> do we, do we actually know what his friends think about him? <laughs> We've only gotten Lane's perspective. I don't know. No, I, I mean, I definitely, he said it was totally fine if I put the website up. He said, so he also did this on, I guess, his his work server. He said he'd never made a website before. I don't believe you. You did a really good job. If then, I, mean, I tried to make our website failed instantly and called a professional, uh, but you did uh, an amazing job. Like all great uh, art, it's slightly insane, and it so deserves to yeah. be looked I mean, at. It's in not detail. slightly, not slightly. No, I laughed so many times. It's so. I mean, you'll 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 see the link. Uh, it's called Gloomhavenese. That he said he doesn't even know why it's called that, but that was the name of their gaming group because, well, much like Sean and many people who listen to this podcast, they uh, regularly play Gloomhaven. Um, but it, it was such he put so much work into it and so much effort, and there's so much humor, and I just think it just it perfectly captures a group of friends who game together regularly and uh, make fun of each other constantly. Uh, Matt, before we move on, I do want to wrap this in mm. that uh, all of my three choices are the winners. 
Wow. Is that right? That's right. Uh, you yes. metagamed well. Uh, apologies for switching your names, Lane and uh, Andrew. I, uh, I, uh, we I, judge these I without... I listed and, and remembered incorrectly. Yeah, we, just, we judge these without names. Uh, yeah. So we're that just right. now attaching the yes. names to uh, So those are our three winners. And um, I thought this contest was wildly successful. I can't promise we'll do it the same contest again, but I think we'll try to do some contest at this point in this round. I can't promise it will be as extravagant of a prize because we did give away $300 worth of... Uh, our hard-earned money to people. Uh, once again, this is never a podcast that gets money. This is just a podcast that is here for free for your entertainment. I think I owe you $40. I think you do. That was the <laughs> amount that we all chipped in to make this happen. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. You know, if people who li- are listening and have wonderful prizes they want to send us to give out, that would be fine too. But otherwise, we'll scrounge something together like we did this time. Um, so yeah, thank you for everybody who submitted. And if you didn't win, um, just know that your submission still uh, entered our hearts and we loved them. Uh, let's talk about this week's game night. I had a rough game night. I, I don't, I, yeah. look, I'm, I'm going through a lot of, uh, I'm going through, sounds intense. I am under a lot of work pressure at the moment and have wild deadlines. And so I also have a young child at home and a pregnant wife. And so by the time I uh, run to game night, I'm usually exhausted. And I think I need to start taking that more seriously and stop trying to teach games as much. Uh, and Matt, I felt bad about what happened to you. I, I, I think well, Game Night got a little broken. Let's talk about it. We were playing Avalon. You got shamed. Uh, and uh, Avalon is so joyous and so enjoyable. Is it? Even when you're being beaten. Is for it, me, is it for me personally. And shaming takes away the joy of losing. Well, and I shamed myself it has as no, much as... Yeah, that, no. I was about to say. I don't, who, who, you said he was shamed. There was a lot of self-shame. There was a lot of self-flagellation happening like, during that, yeah. Trying to stop you from hitting yourself at yeah. the end of the night. So, so we played Avalon. I was, uh, I was a blue player, a, a true good. I was not a Merlin. I was not a Percival. I was just your, your standard blue uh, hardest role in the game. Hardest role in the game, sure. And uh, thank you, Trey. And uh, I lost the game for us. That's you, not did not. That's you did not. You did not. In fact, Trey, Paul, and I were spies. We made so many mistakes, starting with. That's not making him feel better. Well, we made more mistakes than you did. I don't think you made any. I thought you played a terrific okay. Let's get some game. Yeah, yeah. Let's, set, let's set the stage a little bit. Go ahead. Um, it was a weird game because we actually played the game without incorrectly. We played I, it I, without Mordred, which was my fault. I forgot to throw it in. Yeah. Fair enough, but this was something that uh, the spies did not quite realize, even after the reveal, where we looked at each other, saw three thumbs, but none of nobody identified themselves yeah. as Mordred. But we all assumed that somebody had screwed up on our end. Uh, actually, so there, there, we there mis- should have been a mulligan. We misread each other. We misread each other because I thought you were Mordred. You thought Paul was Mordred. Paul thought I was Mordred. That's Even right. though we were not giving any conscious symbol, uh, any conscious uh, signals, everybody thought assumed, you, you know, everybody assumed that we did of the spies. And, now, and that was very interesting. Now let's talk about the blue team really quick because I've got two spies sitting here with me. Let's talk yes. about the blue team. Jesse, I'm not a spy, Matt. Yeah, too I'm, late. I, I believed you before. Uh, Jesse was our Merlin. And now, look, Jesse still, and, and he'll say this often, uh, does not play this game as often as the rest of us. Um, and uh, not to throw Jesse under the bus, but he, he, didn't, he, he at least did not signal to me he was Merlin. And I, I needed that. Uh, I'm not the best Avalon player, and I was more than usual struggling in this game. And even 
I, I, I tried to, my goal, my way of letting Merlin know I need help is to whine and to say, I don't know what the hell I'm and doing. That's what I do as a blue player. Yeah. I say I'm clueless yeah, and, and, hope and that wait that is, for, for somebody to and, give me information. Exactly. And I, I, you know, Jesse told me he was trying and we were ships in the night, I guess. And I missed his signals, but I definitely, he was on my list of potentials and I kept looking at him and waiting for a signal. And I didn't get one. And, uh, I found that frustrating. And um, by the end of the game, the final vote really came down to me, and I chose the spies as the good guys. I just, you know, but so here's what Paul did. Paul did what I needed Jesse to do, which was to signal me. And he signaled that he was Merlin, and Paul was a spy, which, by the way, is a great play and, 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 and a cruel play <laughs> to play on someone as hopeless as I am in this Actually, game. Actually, uh, Paul and I discussed this afterwards, and he was wondering if he went a little too far with he, that. He looked at me, he pointed to himself and he nodded. And then a couple times before votes, I looked to him and he told me what to do. And, and this, is, I this did is, it. yeah, this is a play that a non Mordred spy can try. Yeah. That's like, I think we just saw it successfully. Executed. And I've been waiting for this play for a long time. I've always said like, why don't more spies pretend to be Merlin? And I'm glad he did it, but it, it, I will say, it was a bad feeling because I went, well, no one else is telling me they're Merlin. I have made it very clear I want to be told. He told me I have to trust him. And Tom was everyone on the other the people who turned out to be good, who I thought were spies, Tom, I thought was for sure a spy, was like begging me not to listen to to Paul. And I and I and he he kept saying, like, it doesn't make sense why you're listening to him. He has no proof. And I couldn't just say aloud, he signaled me. That's my proof, and I have to stick with that because nobody else is giving me anything, and I think he's Merlin. And I, and also, I was going to say, I don't think he's being a good Merlin. I think he's playing poorly because he's not. He's he's picking bad teams, which should have been a very strong clue for me that he wasn't Merlin. But I had I had one piece of information. He pointed to himself, and I had Tom, who's a very good player, telling me that I was being lied to. But that's what Tom would do if he was a spy. It's like being bluffed at poker. It feels horrible, horrible. when somebody bluffs you, yeah. but it's a great play yeah and, and and i in avalon when somebody like paul or, or anybody plays me like that yeah uh i go wow at a certain point you i'm get, gonna try it next at game. a certain point at least for me in avalon i often find i come to a point where it's okay i'm gonna make a choice yep. who will i feel worse about being ridiculed by who, 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 who <laughs> who's like in, in in which person tricking me will hurt more and I often go, I will feel worse if Tom played me than if Paul played me. And so I chose to go with Paul playing me, and he was playing me. I think we're kind of looking at a little bit of like the fundamental divide about like why this game sometimes, like you find it so painful. Yeah. And I think that's like the, the emotions you're feeling are the same reasons that the rest of us or a lot of us are so excited about the game mm. is because there are these kind of emotional stakes yeah, that that can elevate the game to a, a higher level and a higher level of engagement. Like you have to risk being humiliated. Um, that's actually like part of the appeal, the high wire yeah. act of of the, it. Like that's the uh, stake. Going Absolutely. back in, in our own like game group, we roll it back like eight, ten years playing Battlestar Galactica, where I had a game where I was just completely humiliated. Like I felt like less than a man after this. And, and a number of people were kind of happy to tell me how badly I'd, I'd played a game and <laughs> yeah. bring it up repeatedly after. And so like getting better at the game has actually been 
rather pleasurable, but you do take this risk of like, oh, I've, I've got to make this decision where I put it all on the line. Huge stakes. You put all your chips in the center of the table. Yep. And sometimes you, yeah. you lose them all. And that's what I did. Yep. Uh, and you had to. And this is real. This, if anything, this has really shown me this is not a game to play with people you are not very close with because th- this is a game of gaslighting. And like, absolutely. And, yeah. and by the end of the game, if you've been gaslit by people A, you don't like, or B, you don't know, you will just continue to not like them. <laughs> you, you will make something. It's hard for your brain. As a human being, we are hardwired for trust. And when that trust is betrayed, even if you know it's a game, part, like even I was, I was sort of not really joking at the end with Paul. And I was like, I feel like my outside the game trust for you has degraded slightly from this. Like just the fact that like that feeling of being so lied to you looking me in the eye and going, I'm telling you the truth, Matt, you have to believe me. And then afterwards going, yeah, I just lied to you. Uh, I actually believe then that when trust gets damaged, it's like a broken bone Mm. uh, or an exercised muscle. Uh, When it heals, Mm. uh, it heals stronger. Well, only time will tell on that front. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, But our friend Scott does not trust me. Like from playing in the, in the games, like uh, we played that game at Tom's like ten years ago, in which I was a movie producer. He and still remembers that. Still remembers that. Well, and, but and, he and you also what game know, like, were you a movie producer? It was one of Tom's come over and like uh, it was kind of a little LARP party game type. Okay. Yeah, so it was one of we were, those non. We were writing and putting games. together movies, and then people would like kind of vote about like what was successful. Yeah, we we, okay. we don't we we don't do that much we, anymore. But you know now, yeah, that Paul is perfectly capable of completely deceiving 100%. you and you and it's hard not to draw some kind of character implications from that sure it's like you just know this is in his arsenal yeah as a gamer yeah and as a person well and hopefully not as a, as a person spy. But, yeah. but he no he's capable of it he's capable of it. I, mean, sure. I think he's in real life he would not do that but Correct. he's capable he's of matt of it. matt all of us are capable of yeah, completely right. deceiving you're forgetting your history. at least trying yeah. you know uh, look, the game, I, at the end, I felt, I just felt dumb at the end of it. And it, that was, and that was, I get, you know what I think I'm, I'm, I was having a very, I was very stressed and overwhelmed for the week. And I think it hit me harder than normal. Not like it like was wildly obvious for the night or I was like in a depression, but it was, it definitely like, I, I still kept it with me after I went home and I was like, well, that didn't feel good. You should treasure feeling dumb because of how rarely uh, that let's, opportunity let's, let's is given Because it was clear you were beating yourself up. I thought really unnecessarily. And uh, yep. like we do need to in some ways part of this podcast is uh being personal about the group and uh, jesse blew it jesse's the one who should feel bad here jesse well, he's was not, a, he's not here to defend himself so well too bad this this is this is kind of we, we need to be honest here he was a bad merlin let me put it this way his inexperience showed okay. he was willing to stay hidden yeah. as merlin merlin throughout the entire game that was his main priority yeah and that's why you guys lost the it game. seemed he took he took merlin hiding more more uh than he should have. as a priority you were signaling than... i need information and yeah. he was letting people take votes that could lose them the game he needed to and take it wasn't a, you a guys could have lost risks. the game two turns earlier on on your team. we screwed up right the trey and I'm i blamed. screwed up we we you both there were two spy votes yeah that's we, right. We, it we, could have ended earlier, it, and like Merlin yeah. can't let it get to that. That's right, and and I think what Jesse forgot uh, is that you have to reveal yourself as Merlin to the blue guys and ha- trust them that they will cover yeah. for you. And you really you, only you have can't to do hide. it. You only really. I mean. It, I don't think he signaled to anybody, did he? He didn't. He didn't. Right. So because you only really need to signal to one, and then like the others will. You know, hopefully, do some signaling too, so that you're not so clearly, obviously. Yeah, was Tom was doing a lot of work to convey information. What the problem was is is that you did not trust him he because you had nothing spy-ish. else to go to yeah. go with. 
to me, on the other side, it's, it's so interesting in this game, like your who you are in the game gives you context to interpret all these different things. You know, through this whole thing, I'm looking like, wow, Tom's doing a lot of work trying to convey information here. It's, Tom was Percival. He was trying to cover very like if he's hard. Merlin, this is like the, one of the most overt Merlins I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah. He was trying to cover very hard for Jesse, who wasn't yeah. doing any work. And well, when I mean, you're let's a person, any work, but he he wasn't. Uh... He wasn't. He wasn't at least telling the right people that he was Merlin. In when a you're way. Percival and you're trying an awful lot, when, when you're trying very hard, it can seem like you're a spy. Yeah, absolutely. He, he also, um, again, like his primary priority was preserving his secrecy as Merlin. So, for example, the starting team was Jesse and me. He knew I was a spy. He, as Merlin, put me on the team, which is a nice thing to do to hide as Merlin. Right, because but you, it's not, it looks like you're making a mistake. Sure, right, but. It, um, it doesn't like it doesn't give you any information to help figure anything out. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying that was always his priority throughout the entire. Yeah. Game. And even uh, you can play a semi obvious Merlin because a semi obvious Merlin often looks like a Percival, right? Because yes. He, so I mean, that, I think that's a tool that uh, that, Paul Mer- said. that Merlins with not so much experience could could try to use is to it's okay if people think you're Merlin because that often makes people think you're Percival. Yes. Paul said that it comes down to a choice between two people. Right. In a perfect game, right? Exactly. Uh, and Jesse, we love you. Yeah. Uh, no, this is, I, I, I'm not. I, I've played Merlin and done horribly, so it, it's a very tough role to play. Uh, then we played Forbidden Stars, as uh, I promised Tom we would do. Uh, I was still way too tired to teach that game. I think I did a horrible job at it. I think I need to take more seriously my role as a teacher and recognize my signals when I am tired and not a good teacher. It was a fine game, but the teach took much longer than it needed to. And uh, we did get to the end of it, but uh, we had to sort of rush the last few rounds. Uh, That was Tom Alfred, me and Paul playing that. Trey, Dimitri, (laughs) Dimitri, who's that? (laughs) Trey, I was trying to say Jesse or Dimitri. Trey, Dimitri, and Jesse played a game called... Neom. What is Neom. Neom is tile-based Seven Wonders meets SimCity. That's right. You, you, you have tiles that stand for three types of buildings, uh, residential, um, manufacturing, retail, and there's a fourth type that I forgot about, municipal. And the municipal tiles, when you place them, they kind of change the zoning laws, sometimes to your advantage. Um, and the tiles are printed with streets. So that kind of constrains how you place them on the board because the streets have to match. And it's basically um, a set collection game uh, with constraints on it. It came out in 2018. It is designer designed by Paul Sato Santi with artist uh, art by Clemens Franz and Christian Operer. Um, it is a pretty game. It plays one to five. It's a lookout game. It is a uh, medium, a light medium weight game, I'd say. It took us about an hour to play. Okay, that's a good length. Yeah, yeah we Box played twice 45. while you guys played Forbidden Stars, with, yeah. and, and that included our teach. I'll, I'll check out anything from Lookout. I mean, they, these are the people behind Agricola, mm-hmm. and, sure. they, um, and they tend to make really solid They make good heroes. hero choices. Uh, give us your brief thoughts on it. Um, I thought it was pretty solid. I'm not sure it's uh, one of these ones that's just spectacular and we're dying to play again. I had heard some reviews from Tom Vassell and Rado that said they really liked it, but they had not liked a certain uh, disaster aspect of the game. I did not find the disaster aspect to be... Sort of like an event? Random yeah, like events. once per round, there's going to be a disaster. And, um, you know, one person's going to get to play it. It will affect the other two, but there's downsides to you playing it uh, yourself. Um, I thought that was 
fine and not nearly as onerous as some other reviews made it. To me, it was more like, mm, solid game. I'm not sure there was that tiny little bit of magic that says, oh, I want to play this again and again. Yeah. Um, like, imagine if... To me, it's like the difference between Agricola, where you have the cards that provides a lot of variability, versus Caverna, where you always have the same tiles. There was a little bit of, oh, we're only going to use these tiles, so... Yes, there will be replayability in terms of how the tiles come out, but it didn't have that magic that, that sometimes the terraforming Mars yeah. has of, oh, I got this f- spectacular combination of cards that I built that makes right. for a really unique game. So. Uh, yeah, what it's missing for me is uh, like an engine that you can maybe get a lot of points with mm-hmm. uh, if you put it together correctly, if you play it correctly. There were a lot of like resources that you built on you know, and made into more complex resources yeah. and then you can build a building with those complex resources but it felt too linear rather than ooh I can take off in a rocket if I get these three things there seems to be quite a genre of these sort of super fillers in the last year or two these sort of like hour long games that sort of have a hard time fitting in in a lot of game nights because they they're usually games you play twice. Quacks of Quedlinburg is a super filler Tiny Towns uh, Neon Ours Ours tech, yeah, ours. Uh, yeah, I think this res, falls res in Arcana. this. Res yeah. Arcana, that's it. Um, I think Wingspan this falls in the even. same category, and I think this is solid. I, I really do think this is a good game. Um, it's just like we have such a wealth of choices right now. If something doesn't, you know, it, yeah. if it's kind of like not sneaking into your dreams at night, then super fillers are rough. Yeah, I don't. I have a hard time finding the right space I, for them. I they don't my, get played as often. I think my favorite super filler is Estates. Yeah, because it estates seems is, brilliant. Is, it yeah. seems like. It has a mechanism I can't that disagree is with that. not replaceable. I can't disagree with that. I'm I'm infatuated with the states. Uh, that was a, that was our game night. Let us move on to the news. It's a light news week this week, but there is one huge piece of news: the Oscars of the board game world, the uh, Spiel des Jahres. Uh, was was announced today, the nominees. There are two main sections of the Spiel des Jahres. There is the Spiel des Jahres and the Kenner Spiel des Jahres. Kenner Spiel des Jahres is the connoisseur board games, the heavier board games. Much like most years in the Spiel des Jahres, I have not played any of the basic Spiel des Jahres games. The three nominees this year are Just One, which is sort of a uh, word-guessing party game, sort of like code names, a game called Llama by Reiner Knizia, and a game called Werewerter, which I think is uh, translated into word... Where werewolf words something where words uh, maybe where words probably what it is that's by Ted Alspach and Bezier Games Ted Alspach I think so I pronounce it um, haven't played any of those just one actually looks interesting it looks like a lighter code names sort of Balder Dash hybrid it looks like actually a fun party game um, I might want to check out just one for. Uh, holidays and families and things like that the kenner spiel de jaris the what's is sort of the the more gamer games con, uh, connoisseur games the three nominees this year are wingspan which was our first review uh designed by elizabeth hargrave and stonemeyer games uh detective by ignacy trezowick i believe i'm saying that incorrectly uh portal games that is sort of uh like the game that we reviewed with jesse uh this is the one i liked a lot better than uh, yeah, was Chronicles of Crime. Okay, I think so Detective is the superior game. What, what is the difference? Oh, well, Detective um, uses... It's all internet-based. They both use apps, right? Both use apps, but uh, Chronicles of Crime is more about like creating a room that you then look around... Um, and like we struggled a little bit with like the interactions in the terms of like the way you gather information, the way you get questions answered. Um, 
felt a little repetitive. Whereas Detective, it's just it's a better written. Mm. It's 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 deeper. Uh, it's based on reality. Like you, there's nothing cheating about like using Google, right? To so look yeah, stuff. That, up. That's one thing I noticed. That's so like a lot of it is like actually doing real world research. Yeah. So like that's uh, fun. It, it's just it felt a lot richer. I felt like the decisions we were making as detectives were were using a much larger part of our brain. Uh, I played both these games with uh, Dimitri, and it was one of those things where everybody's different personality had the potential to really add a lot to the discussion oh, of cool. what should we be thinking about and making um, decisions. So maybe it's just a personal preference. I mean, crime uh, Chronicles of Crime is easier and lighter. Detective was deeper, richer, better written, and more engaging. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, well, maybe we should review that one of these days. Uh, the third game nominated was is uh, Carpe Diem from Stefan Feld. I have not played Carpe Diem yet, but I do like Stefan Feld games. He makes some wonderful. How have we not up. played this? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it it's one of those things with uh, our group has cooled a little bit on Feld. Like everybody knows, well, it's great, it's, but it's it's that same super filler problem. I mean, like. Castles of Burgundy is like the ultimate super filler. It's it's an hour and a half of tops. I mean, that's that. Yeah, you've you've mentioned like you've you've brought up Castles of Burgundy on the sh- show a couple times. Like you you like you view it as this kind of very like middle of the road. I think it's a lot heavier than you kind of really estimate. Yeah, it's I play not, it. I play it on the app it's a so full much. Game. That, yeah, it's a. I mean, I love that game. I think it's fantastic. It's not a, in my mind, it's not a filler. At no, all. but it's a ninety minute game. I think I don't think it's that long. Um, I don't know. I, the app cheats it. I'm so used to playing on the app. The app's fantastic, by the way, if you've never played it. I mean, it's still uh, like his... I think it's his best game. Oh, yeah. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a really high opinion of it. I just... Yeah. I don't think it's light, and I don't think it's a filler. I I, I definitely read reviews on Carpet Dam. It is so ugly. It's so <laughs> ugly. I mean, like, I don't care. Like, that's fine. But this there is a level of ugliness where it's just like, oh, man, it's so ugly. Like, it's just... No... And, and I'm, this is not hate towards the designer it, it, it's not it's not just the art i mean the components are just they're just cheap and they're you know they saved a lot of money and then look i get it the board games are expensive to reduce and you know but i, I don't know it limits the audience Aliyah games does this a lot same people who made castles of burgundy um i don't know i feel like there is a market now for higher i mean i don't know maybe Aliyah needs to look into kickstarter i don't know i think i think i think a lot of these stefan feld games could be hits it's just people are used to a certain level of board game components at this point now. I mean, do you think they're at, not doing well? I mean, I think he's it's one of the most bankable designers in the hobby, don't you think? I don't. I mean, okay, look at Wingspan. Wingspan's okay, a phenomenon but, though. That's right, like saying but, look at Blair Witch Project. Those no, eggs but, look but too much like candy. A huge part of That's part of its appeal. A huge part of Wingspan is the component quality. Now, yeah. it, the design of it is I, I enjoy, but I you know I, I can't say that with I, I with, if, if if Wingspan looked like Carpe Diem, it would sell worse than Carpe Diem. Sure. Yeah, you, you're, you're walking around a con, you see Wingspan, you stop. Exactly. You I think, look at the, so, I mean, I think, I think they would, I think the name Stefan Feld with Wingspan level components would, would be a huge hit. And I think sell a lot more copies than they're selling. But I mean, I think they're, they're, they have a, their market is much more German based, uh, where maybe that means less. Um, I don't know. I can't pretend that I know too much about their business plans. But Germany anyway. is all about beauty, Matt. Carpe, <laughs> you're so wrong. Carpe diem. Um, I would like to try it. The reviews, you know, it's a tile lane game. It's not my favorite uh, type of game. Um, but look, I, I do enjoy Stefan Feld games. Um, so there's also the uh, 
the children's side of the Spiel des Jahres, which is the Kinder Spiel des Jahres. We're not going to say the nominees because I will probably never try those because they're for children. Um, and my children are too young to play children's games. But one day they will, and I'll probably be quite interested in that. Um, the last bit of news this week is there are two new apps uh, that you can get on your phones. One is Fort Sumter, which is a GMT game. I think it's very interesting. They brought that to apps. It is sort of Twilight Struggle in 20 minutes. Um, and that's not really inaccurate. Uh, I think it's a fun game. I've never played the app, but I have the physical version. And I've enjoyed it. One Deck Dungeon is maybe my favorite fast board game app. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It's a single player game and it has only been on iPad until now. And now it is released on all iOS phones or Android phones. So if uh, you want to have it on your phone now, you can now have a very addictive, fun dice rolling game on your phone, not just your iPad. Uh, let's move on to games on the brain. This is where we talk about things that we have been thinking about this week, games we're interested in, things you kickstarted, things you pre-ordered, things you're hoping to come to your door soon, things you just got in the mail. Uh, Trey, you got anything for us this week? Barrage. I got a chance to take a look at Barrage for the first time. I didn't get a full play in, um, but my friend, uh, Josh invited me on to Tabletop Simulator and, uh, I was able to kind of come in mid-game and watch Barrage, which is a... You've kickstarted it, right? I uh, yeah. The, so the Kickstarter has been, um, I would say, a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, someone who backs a lot of Kickstarters, I've seen a lot of disasters. This is just uh, very late, and does not. It seems like they've struggled. It seems like they've struggled a lot with getting this on its feet and getting it out the door and getting the, like they they had this whole separate add on, which I'm glad I didn't purchase at this point, which is a 3D board and they you know it looked gorgeous in the pictures i mean there's like levels to it and the pieces fit in and it's very it's this whole beautiful thing i do not completely understand this game but if i understand mostly correctly we have a series of dams that cascade down so that makes sense in terms of the three-dimensional aspect of this and each player is kind of placing uh dams or or structures which are going to you know kind of contain the water and then you're going to generate power by running water through it into these kind of like lower and lower pools uh it's a worker placement game it looked it's medium, really it's medium heavy um it and really rich uh, the designer is one of my favorite designers might be my favorite designer of all time simone luciani who's one of the two designers along with tommaso batista this is the italian board game mafia that we've talked about not an actual mafia i'm just saying there are a lot of them who seem <laughs> to definitely you know. play together uh but this these are this the italian brain trust of incredible designers who make basically all my favorite games. I mean, uh, Simone Luciani did Zulkin, Voyages of Marco Polo, Grand Austria Hotel, Lorenzo Magnifico. I mean, it's hard to find a list of games I like more. So it was an auto back for me. Um, and hopefully it's coming, I don't know, by August or September at this point. It was supposed to come months ago. Uh, but anyway, the, 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 the fans, they have a fancy version of the board, which, which is thick and fixed, uh, fits together with magnets. And they've showed the final version that is shipping. And it literally looks like somebody took poster board and spray painted the sides. It just, it looks really bad. It's not the greatest looking game I've ever seen, but I was watching people play the game and it looked really solid. So I'm yeah, dying to play. It. I, I'm very excited for the game. It's high, high on my list of things I'm most excited to play for the rest of the and year. And the title Barrage for a game about building dams. I mean, Barrage sounds exciting. Building dams does not. So I can understand the title, but it doesn't necessarily, unless there's some meaning well, of Barrage, I'm not understanding. It's a steampunk sci-fi theme. It's not based in our reality. Yeah. Um, there's some sort of storyline behind it. I don't know what it means necessarily, but it, it, it sort of has like a, a brass feel to it in the sense that the art is very sort of on purpose, dreary and dy- dystopian. Barrage is synonym for flood. 
Okay. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, or like Deluge and Barrage. Um, and I'm wildly like excited for it. Don't don't care what it looks like because I think the design is going to be fantastic. But uh, that's that's prototypes. I have a game on the brain. Uh-oh. Uh, and I had an epiphany while playing Underwater Cities. Mm. Uh, and Tom had the mini review. I, I think it's still mm. relevant to talk about it Absolutely. a little bit. Okay. Um, I haven't even done and, a full review yet. Yeah, so uh, when I was playing it, I realized for the second time when I was playing it that it's a lot like Agricola and Caverna. Yeah. Yeah, B- because um, uh, you, you have your own player board. Everyone has their own player board. Yeah. And you're act- also taking actions. It's a worker placement game where it's an exclusive worker placement. If you take that action, no one else can take that action. It's a true worker turn. placement game, yes. That's true. So um, the epiphany that I had is how much of it... Were you in the shower when you had this epiphany? Was this a shower thought? Hashtag shower thoughts? Yes, All right. yes. Uh, and... Uh, Basically, how much of it depends on the end game condition yep. that is present in Agricola and Caverna, but is not pl- present in, in, in Underwater Cities. Yep. Um, Alfred almost lapped Paul and myself mm-hmm. uh, because he played the overpowered kelp strategy. Well, okay. He did it brilliantly, right? Yes. And, and all he was doing is building kelp farms. Mm-hmm. In Agricola and in Caverna, if you don't diversify, you get negative points for not having potentially. Yes, well, you definitely things. have negative points for not having a little bit of everything, but, but doesn't mean you have to really diversify fully. But, but yeah, the scoring system rewards it does. Yeah. Yes, but, but in, that, that that loss can be mitigated. But yeah, yep. that's true. But in underwater cities, you do not get negative points. There's no rule like that. There's no end game rule, even though it is remarkably similar to how Agricola and Caverna work. You, mm-hmm. you you improve your board, you build all these yeah, things. Yeah, you're building you a little city. That, that's right. For me, that's an example of an endgame rule that pretty much determines the game, even though there's no difference in what the board actually looks like or how the board functions. It awards or doesn't award points purely arbitrarily. And it's very hard to spot because in underwater cities, it functions by its absence. And I've been thinking about Scott Westerfield's Westerfeld's. I don't know what's that. Uh, the the big uh, the 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 big talk that you oh, yeah, shared yeah, with us right, yeah. uh, about how he doesn't like end game scoring. A, right. uh, period. Uh, for me, if he's right about one thing. He's right about these arbitrary rules uh, that are meant to balance the game that can determine a winner or a loser without really affecting how the game has been played all the way up to that point. Yeah. I mean, you're also playing on the variable sides of the of the player boards, which are different for everybody. So the, the, there can be a little bit of a uh, an imbalance there. I think I think we've played we think, I think uh, Underwater Cities particularly is a game where more variability in setup will lead to more randomness in the end. Uh, and I, I think the more I'm seeing people are more interested in playing on the, with less variability in that game purely because uh, it's harder to check players for certain strategies. Like because kelp is potentially overpowered, having everybody with a slightly different board state at the beginning and different variability can lead to uh, accidental advantages or disadvantages for certain people. For me, I think that end game rule that does not take away points yeah. for diversity had the biggest impact. Well, the game does highly reward diversity, though, because an entire scoring element of the end game is you get huge points for having 
different types of things around every city, which I think is the point of mitigating that. Well, well, you actually get like four extra points of that per city at the end, whereas for kelp, you get potentially three extra points every round. I think think where kelp lands right now in that game, though, if somebody's going that hard on kelp, it's sort of on the other two players to check them a little bit, which, which is not wonderful and can lead to the person who checks them loses. But I think there needs to be, somebody has to be, battling for to, to prevent him from kelping. Yeah, theoretically, it's worker placement, so you should prioritize building those kelp farms yeah. higher, right? But, I mean, we're, I think we're just one step closer towards saying this feels like a really dominant strategy yeah. that is detracting but from I, the game. I think right now it's bit. one of those games where if three people each race three different strategies, kelp will win. Right. Sure. I think you can, this is not a race game. I don't think, you know, people can each take a different, I think there has to be. There some, has to be a certain amount of denial. There has to be denial. Yeah. That's actually what happened when Paul and um, Alfred and I played it. We each took a different strategy. Yeah. Alfred kelp will win every kelp. time if you do that. Yeah. yeah. It's I'm not saying that's, that's great design, but it's I'm, I'm saying that's yeah. definitely the way it is. Uh, I have been playing uh, Gaia Project a lot this week. I've been, the solo version of Gaia Project I'm going to say it right now is the best implementation of a solo game I've ever played. Uh, it there isn't in uh, the company who uh, who does all the solo games for Stonemeyer, which are fantastic, is called Atoma, I believe, and they are just they just build solo games for board games. So if you build a board game, you hire them to come in and figure out how to turn it into a solo. Oh, game. That's cool. Um, and they did an incredible job with Guy Project. I have played a few games of it now. And it's making me a much better player at Gaia Project. I love Gaia Project. It's a game that I want to be better at. It's one of the handful of games I know that I, I really would take pride in being good at. And I think it's, uh, it, it deserves the amount of time you put into it to become a good player at it because I think it's that wonderful of a design and sort of that flawless. It's a top 10 game that should be on the top 10 list. Right? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a top 10 of all time game for, for most people in our group, especially. Yeah, definitely And it's myself. a remake of a game. It's a, it's a, 2.0 of Terra Mystica, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I've been playing the solo of it. I, I, I'm enamored with it. If you are on the fence about Gaia, I, I honestly think it's worth buying even if you just play solo. I think it is that good. Of it, it did, I did not feel like I was playing a different game than if I was just playing a two-player game against somebody. Um, it felt as tight. It felt as interesting. It felt as the, the, the AI they designed in, it is all done with a deck of cards. It's really fast. It's not like playing a GMT coin game where it's going to take you 45 minutes to look through every exception. Well, when you go through the 18 point list of, of tiebreakers, like there's three or four tiebreakers for things like if it places a building, it places it here. And if this is not available, it places it. I mean, by so are, the, you, are you actually like putting out the game here on the table here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Playing? yeah okay. So it's not an app. No, no, no. You're, this is a solo. I'm playing the whole board game at my table. I, I do it like, uh, like, like a chess player who's very good at chess, who like plays multiple games. Like I set it up on my table and then I go and I write a scene or I, I go work for an hour and I come back and I take three or four moves and I go back. And so it's sort of, it's a nice break for me that does not involve staring at the internet. Yeah. And how it, many alien races are there in the game? The AI, uh, there are seven different AI races. So half of the races in the game, but you can play as any of the 14 and then half of them are represented. So by there AI. are a lot of potential yeah. solo games. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's just, it was really, really engaging. Um, and that's sort of the hard part with solo games is they're often not wildly engaging and they just feel like puzzles. This really felt like I was playing against somebody. Um, and I got worked and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is making me a better player. Uh, so yeah, that is games on the brain. We're going to update you on the eight by eight challenge. We played Avalon. That's one check for the week. We did our job. 
Uh, Strategicon is this weekend. We're going to be playing a lot of games Strategicon. You're both coming with me. Yes. It is my birthday weekend. Yes, happy birthday. Which means I can bully you all into playing games that I want to play. But well, I by the time you'll be listening to this, guys, yeah. this is the previous weekend. Question, though. Do games at Strategicon count for the 8 by 8 challenge? Uh, if we are playing if them, we talk sure. about them. Yeah. All right. They do then. So, you know, maybe we'll check Typically, the Typically, at Strategicon, we tend to play new stuff, though, right? Like, this is yeah. often, like, we see people we don't know, and they've got some game from somewhere. And... This year, there are not... Uh, there's really nothing that uh, I'm, I haven't played okay. that I want to play. I, I mean, I'm gonna, I, might, I would like to play great games. I would like to play games we like. Um, I do want to play Tricarion, which I'm excited to play, which is not new, but it is new to me and very heavy worker placement game that I'm excited to try. Maybe we can play Carpe Diem. Uh, that, yeah, if somebody has a copy of that, I'd be interested in learning that as well. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a year where... Uh, this, so, uh, Strategicon happens three times out of the year. This is not the high point of releases for the year. Right. Uh, that, that, that happens usually at the fall one uh, after Gen Con where there's a lot of new games that people went to Gen Con and brought with them uh, or at the end of the year when people uh, came back from Essen. Right. Uh, but yeah, this one is the one where uh, there are less sort of huge new games everybody's dying to play. Um, but yeah, that'll be fun this weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Let's move on to our review of the week. This week's review is Teo Tewakan, City of Gods. The designer is Daniel Tashini. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe it's Taskini, Tassini. Uh, he is the designer of Zolkin, the Mayan calendar, and Voyages of Marco Polo, two of my favorite games of all time. And games we play all the time. Voyages of Marco Polo, absolutely in my top 10 of all time. Great expansion. This is, it is, uh, this is the spiritual successor, as he has said himself, to Zulkin, uh, which is a fantastic game um, that uses a very interesting worker place and rondelle system, it, which it's is... basically like a shopping mall around the edge of the board, and yep. your workers circle round and round, and they visit shops. In and this they game, tra- yes, yes, and in they Zulkin, yes. trade in resources, uh, and buy resources until they die. Yep. Uh, and in the center of the... Z- of the Zocalo is a ziggurat we're all building out of smooth, shiny plastic blocks with tiny art on them. Yes. Uh, for me, it's lighter and less rigid and plays faster than Tolkien. Uh, and I think it's actually a great game for a nine gamer. There's always something to do. You never get stuck and you can enjoy it even if you don't win. This is not a game for a non-gamer. I would never play as a non-gamer. But it is definitely lighter than Zulkin. So both of them, let's talk about their similarities quickly before we get into Teotihuacan. They both use time as a a mechanism in the game. Um, They both use a rondelle system, although in two very different interesting ways. Uh, Zulkin has these three three different wheels on the board that you place workers on and as time passes they can get some better things until you decide to take them off that wheel. In this one, all your workers are literally moving around in a one direction yeah, stream. Yeah, they're both worker placement and your workers are dice. That is right. Uh, in this game, your workers are dice. Yeah, in this one. Yeah. Let's talk about this one. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, just quickly, I want to say the artist is Odysseus Stamaglu. And let me just read you the story briefly about this. So travel back in time to the greatest city in Mesoamerica. Witness the glory and the twilight of the powerful pre-Columbian civilization. Strategize, accrue wealth, gain the favor of the gods, and become the builder of the magnificent Pyramid of the Sun. Uh so this game does a wonderful job with um, graphic design in that it draws your eye to the three most important things in the game and the main elements of the game, which are in the center of the board. There is a technology track or a cult track, uh, something seen in a lot of board games and, and, and a huge part of Zulkin. Uh, there is also the, the Path of the Dead uh, which is where uh, your workers will be buried. And yes, your workers will die in this game and be reborn uh, to ascension. And then in the center of the board, there's definitely the huge centerpiece of this game, 
which is a giant building temple pyramid that you will be creating throughout the game. And I will say this does almost as good of a job as any game I've ever seen in, 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 in creating a story progression of you are all working together to build this, this pyramid. And by the end of the game, you will have this very, uh, formidable and cool looking pyramid in the center of the board that you all worked mostly create. white with splashes of color it is a triumph of design and the blocks are a joy to handle yeah um i've never now, seen this this is a new it's rare you see a new component in a board game but absolutely. i've never seen these sort of i don't know balsa wood very light airy wood uh with cool designs on them they stack nicely they don't they're not too slippery so they don't move around the table too easily but they're highly polished uh, and, and again, they're like blocks that you can, as Trey is doing right now, play with even when you don't play the yeah. game itself. So I, this I do, is, yeah, go ahead. I do want to say something about the technology track, which is unusual. Um, most of the technology tracks that I'm familiar with, like in Sulkin or, or, or in Gaia mm-hmm. Project, um, you, you get permanent abilities when you advance up the technology track. Right. Here, the technology track actually gives you a one-time bonus yeah. when you advance it's just up free it. free resources. And you get permanent abilities in one of the stores on the edge of the board that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it's an for me, this is an interesting balance. Um, yeah, the tech track in Zolkin is absolutely necessary to any victory condition. Uh, you must be at the top of one or two of those. It is not as necessary in this game. The, the tech track is, is more of, uh, there are three different end game conditions at the top. And this is a cool thing. They only are accessible to you if you're at the top. And so you can trigger those as potential end game conditions that will only benefit you if you get to the top. Uh, so in that sense, it can be super necessary, but you have to call it early. You have to be like, I'm, I'm going towards that and I'm going to build a huge amount of my game around that. But also, even if you're not going to get to the top, uh, you do get something for advancing up the bonus track. It's never a waste. You're always getting yeah. resources. And, and resources are very tight in this game. Let's quickly just just hit on uh, some basics here. This is a wonderful. This is a two to four player game. There is no solo version of this, I don't believe. Uh, a two to two to four player game. It takes about two to three hours, uh, and I would say this is. I would say it's straight up medium. I don't think it's heavy medium. I think this is a medium game. I would say Zolkin is. Heavy, heavy medium heavy. yeah it's 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 towards heavy um sorry this does have a solo uh, version uh one to four players yes i have not played the solo version of it Can't i think i've only played it with three players bgg rates this as a 3.72 i think that's a bit high I, I i would put it more in the three five area but uh it's definitely not a four um so th- let's talk about the basics here this is a worker placement game your workers are dice as trey said and on your turn, you pick one of your three dice. You start with three dice, and you pick one, and you can move it in one direction, one to three spaces. You can never stay in the same place. You have to move your piece. Where you land your piece decides the action you get to do that turn. And the more dice that you have in that location when you arrive of your own color is going to accentuate the action and make it better. So you put one of your workers there. You get, let's say, one wood. Then your next worker, who's behind you, moves. He moves there. On the next turn. On the next turn, you'll get two wood. And now your third one gets there, you'll get three wood. Not only that, though, but your dice level up. So why are there dice in this game? You never roll them. They are purely there to track your level. 
the number of pips on the die that is visible is your character's level or age. The older, more experienced workers get you more resources, right. but they get so much experience eventually that they die That's and right. are replaced by a neophyte. Exactly. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, makes placing these dies even more dicey uh, is that you have to pay. You have to pay... Um, I forget what it is. Cacao. Cacao. You have to pay cacao, uh, depending on how many dice are already in that particular store. So, yeah, cacao is the main resource in this game, and is the it is a wildly tight resource. I mean, you will spend the majority of your game fighting against your cacao engine, and once you get it up and running, uh, the game will probably be almost over. So, cacao is necessary for placing your workers. It is necessary for buying a lot of the... Uh, the tiles that are going to give you powers throughout the game. And uh, so when you land on any spot, you must pay one cacao for every color of, of dye that is there before you get there. In addition to yours. your own. So if there are only three, if there are three red dice there, you only have to pay one cacao because there's only one color of dye there before you arrive. But if everybody's there, you're going to have to pay three. Or you can decide not to take any action and collect cacao. Right. So in, in which case, you in the, it's the inverse plus one. So if there are three different colored dice there, you would get three plus one cacao by going there. But you are forfeiting doing the action in that place. So at any place, you can do the action on the board, typical worker placement style, or you can reject the action and take the amount of cocoa as per there are colored uh, dice there, which is an interesting. So you never can get totally blocked. You're always going to need that cocoa. But you can definitely be in trouble if you really needed that location and can't afford it now. So a large part of the blocking in this game comes from, okay, on my next die, I'm going to move this guy here. But if another player lands there, I am one Coco short of being able to do that action, and I need that action. And now instead of just being totally blocked, you can leave that die behind it and move your other dice and hope eventually people will move out and you'll have a, you'll have a nice window where you can jump in and get it at the price you need. This is a, it's a great mechanism because I think... Uh, balancing a game is really hard. You know, we, we've talked about it about a number of games even in this podcast. And so trying to balance the eight action spaces on this board, it's probably impossible. But this mechanism kind of allows players to provide the balance. Right. The more desirable spaces are going to accumulate more dice, and so they're going to make it more expensive to go there. So in a sense, the mechanism creates a pricing system. And it's a great mechanism because even though there are a lot of constraints on your actions, when I play it, I never feel trapped. There's always something to do, even if it's just collect cacao, because it, it makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel in charge when you're playing the game. Yeah. It's a meaningful decision. Yeah. Exactly. And cacao is used for basically everything in this game. So it, it's, uh, it's a nice it's way. It's the core of, currency. Yeah. Um, another cool thing, anytime you get to location, instead of taking the action or instead of taking the cow, you can also lock your die in, which is a new, a new mechanic I've never really seen before, which is sort of the, are you willing to temporarily lose this die for a potentially powerful get? one time? So when you lock your die in these spaces, and all of these places pretty much have this space, you can either take the technology tile. What is the actual name for those tiles? They're not technology tiles. Uh, there's little small tiles in there. I think it starts with a D. I will look it up. They're discovery tiles. Uh, you can either take a discovery tile, which is going to be either a one-time boost or some sort of little rule-breaking power you can use one time, or you can move up one space on any of the tech tracks. Or for one Coco, you can do both. Uh, which is usually what you're going to do. But you need Coco for that. And if somebody's there, you can kick them out. But by kicking them out, you are freeing them at no cost to them. Now, what is the cost of usually moving out of there? 
Well, before your turn, in any turn, you can spend three cacao to free all your dice that are locked up. Or if you don't have it, you can spend your whole turn doing nothing but just freeing all your dice. And, and you are going to want to lock your dice up because those actions are very good and those uh, those tiles are those discovery tiles are very necessary. And all of those options, even though they sound complicated, are intuitive, at least for me, and give you choices. Yeah. So I, 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 you had said earlier that you think this is a game you could teach non-gamers. I, I disagree, but I, I would say this is a game that you can easily teach to gamers. I think this is a game that, if you are familiar with modern game design, is not a complicated game to learn. Yeah, I think this is a good game for non-gamers like me. Because once I learn it, you're not not a non-gamer. Okay, but look, look, my biggest fear is getting stuck. My biggest fear is that halfway in a game... You've wasted three hours and then you still have an hour and a half left. That's right. I never feel that way during this game. Even though uh, Token is arguably a better game and and it has that remarkable wheels mechanism. This is easier to get on the table. And, and also more forgiving. Zolkin is unforgiving. Zolkin, yes. you can in blow. Zolkin, I felt stuck. I you felt can I cannot do anything. You got I cannot the curve. do anything. That's I'm starving. That's right. I can't get corn. I'm dead. Yeah. So exactly. Still- and here, I always feel I, I feel that someone is holding my hand and yeah. saying, "No, no, no, no. There's something you can do that is a meaningful choice that you can actually." improve your position and feel like you're doing and there, there are stressors in this game there are things that that you must do or else you're in trouble and one of them is feeding your workers but sure. i do find With in, cacao i do yeah. find in this game it is less troublesome and one of the reasons for that is that you are never surprised by it uh anytime so there are three eclipses in the game so three sort of rounds and at the end of the third eclipse that's the end of the game the eclipse can be brought upon by a couple different ways one of them being when the pyramid is finished you instantly just move to the third eclipse even if you're on the second or i think it would be impossible on the first but uh there are a couple different cool ways in the game but uh in the in the version of the game that we've played when an eclipse is triggered, everyone still gets one more round. And usually in that round, because you can always just go to a place and take cacao plus one uh, to the number of dice in there, you can usually, with that last action, save your workers and feed them all. If you don't feed your workers, you lose in victory points. I've never seen anybody lose victory points and not be able to feed their workers. Now, there, there, there is a, uh, a different way of playing this game that I've actually read most people of the way they're playing it, which is the sudden eclipse version. At any time that eclipse would happen... That's it. That's the end of the round. And that could be the end of the game. And that oh. could be a much tighter, more punishing game. But that seems to be the preferred version amongst uh, more experienced gamers. Even in the standard uh, game we play, the Eclipse moves up every right. round. So the rounds do get shorter. It always, yes. Yeah, so the Eclipse moves, gets one round, uh, one turn shorter every time because it moves a little closer. So there, that's uh, represented by two different discs on the round. So there's the, the black disc, which is the Eclipse, and the white disc, which is the sun. Right. There's a tension because the you round. don't know how many actions you have before you have to feed. Exactly. You're because trying to predict it, but it's out of your control because other players can contribute and speed it up. Right. The way to speed it up is through ascension. So ascension is one of the coolest parts in the game and definitely the part when you teach and people go, oh, that's fun. So when your worker, when you die, would ever level up to a six, it dies and returns to a certain spot on the board as a one. Well, wouldn't that be bad? Yes, except you get awesome things when that happens. The first thing you do is you get to move up one space on the path of the dead track. Uh, that is basically a fourth tech track in the game, but it can be a huge point scorer. The other cool thing you get is this little list of prizes and you pick one. And one of those prizes is of course the ultimate prize in any worker placement game, which is an extra worker, an extra worker. Right. And that worker starts as a level three. Ooh. And you also get two cocoa if, if the deal wasn't already sweet enough. 
so that's usually people's first. But then anytime you die, you can choose something else. Five cocoa, five victory points, move up on a tech track. Dying, uh, having ascending one of your workers is always very important and uh and and something you will plan towards and something you will get something from it that is necessary for and your something next few you turns. need to time like exactly. in a game called village that has a similar right where death people are mechanism. dying exactly so uh part of your 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 cost in this game is feeding your workers and the higher level they are the more they cost to feed so fours fives Fours and fives cost two cocoa, and I think one, twos, and threes cost one. So having keeping you know a, a lot of uh, four and fives on your board is going to be very dangerous, especially when you've got four dice. Um, so there can be a strategy of having a lot of low-level guys, and there can be a strategy of rushing ascension, and uh, and the strategy of just having. I, I think there could be a game you could play where you just have three fours and fives, and you you know you figure out how to pay for them, but they can do very powerful actions, and you know you you, you rush them back into fours and fives quickly. Um, let's talk about different strategies briefly. It seems to me from our plays that you cannot win this game if you are not participating in building the pyramid. Would you agree with that? Uh, no? I would. And it, oh, really? Ooh, okay, Trey. Well, I, I I think this is one of those games that really excites me, and I'm still eager to play it a lot. Like, just a really good sign as I'm probably at six or seven plays of this, and I'm still dying to play it more. And I'm have you know thoughts that I thought were kind of dominant strategies early on are okay. not listen all the spaces on the board are not equal yeah uh i haven't seen like great path of the dead victory yeah yet. that's definitely something i feel is weird. um yeah. but i would say not necessarily building the pyramid is essential uh the thing that feels to me overpowered is the actual taking of the tectiles yeah. like i don't think you can opt out of the technology race and still win because you can opt out of the pyramid here and still be placing the kind of uh the little steps of the yeah. pyramid like that can be incredibly high scoring based upon what yeah. techs come out in the game um and i i think i have one by only placing one or two tiles over the course of the of the game right just by placing the steps up the tile one, uh, one thing that i think is a, is a strange bit of design i don't totally understand is so the, there there's a technology store one of the three one of the many places on the board you can land your dice and there are two different rows of technologies there and this game has a huge amount of variability uh there are printed ones on the board which is sort of the base game and the designer has said i actually asked the designer online if this was should be considered the introductory game or considered the full game and, and he said it's actually the full game and the most playtested version the rest are just for variability so it's it's often you'll just find sort of the, this is the beginner game play it once and you learn but i think the printed version is actually a very a, a very strong and strategic version of the game yep but the variable version is where you can mix up everything, even the order the buildings are on the board, the order the technology tiles, every single part of this game can be made variable. So the technology tokens often come out uh, in strange ways and different ones come out and they each give you an augmented power at a different store. So we're, we're talk, I'm calling the places on the board stores, Dimitri said it, and I think it's apt. Uh, when you go to a location on the board, if you have gone to the technology place and put your little disc there, you will have a better version of an action there than anybody else, right? So one thing that I feel is a little odd is you are rewarded for being early on technology, which is being the first to get a technology is already a reward in and of itself. You are, but now anybody who goes there after you, you get three points. So not only could, is turn order so strong that you can be first in the game, get there first, get the best technology first, but now you're going to get nine points also in addition to that. Which and feels it's really to me, a cool story for me though, because if you're... If you identify a technology that is especially desirable and you jump on it, you should be rewarded for it. Well, that, it, I guess it, that's it, one of the things is that... It's like getting a patent on it. It, it makes sense. It, it does make sense, but I also feel like they are not all equal. And there are, there are 
I think the, at, at every time I've never seen a game set up where you didn't look at it and go, oh, that's the best one. There's always one that's just better than the rest, especially for whatever board state you have. And if everybody is wrong, and it's possible, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it it's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to the turn order in mean, round yeah. one. It's so important. It's hugely important I, in this game. I think like if if there's something that feels dominant, it's kind of like in round one of the game. Your first move, if you can, is probably to get a tactile. Yeah, right. To get the best one first, because that's not only getting the best one first. But this you get this should points. not feel completely random compared to other games we've played. I mean, the tactiles are kind of like occupations in yep. Agricola. Like you can't really play Agricola without accumulating occupations. This is kind of a similar thing here, and, yep. and it's going to be a highly competitive space like Agricola, where it, it'll be one of the first things to go every round. It doesn't exactly work that way here, but it's it's priced in that like you need to be prioritizing getting tech. Especially it's very early, early game, game though. This, the tech is dead in the last. Not necessarily because there's the there's game, one that like. that gives you victory points every time you go there. So yeah, I don't, I, oh well, that's true. If that one's out, then yes. But not a lot of them seem to you know very much reward as quickly and early as possible because well, if you're going to be going that place and you're going to be getting a better version of it, you want to get it as many times as possible. Um, I, I I've not played. I so the pyramid to me is a fun game, but I also my only real negative experience with this game is that I feel. It's very hard to plan when to land there perfectly to get the perfect turn. And I feel like some people can luck into landing there and just having the perfect placements because to you, get the most stuff. You do get points. You get, you get amazing points for matching the art on some right. of the blocks. Which come out randomly. Right? Yeah. That's right. It's and, the most random. And I've definitely found that I'm waiting to go there. Someone jumps in ahead of me, or I just went there, and somebody comes in behind me and has a super turn based on nothing other than, well, I got bad tiles and you got great tiles, and, and that can feel that can not that that cannot be a great feeling. And maybe one of the ways to fix it is simply to play the blocks face up, so you know what's coming. Yeah, up. that's a lot of it'd be hard to see the whole you know all thirty what the order they're coming out in, but potentially. But I, I don't dislike that necessarily. I've just found that. Um, it's it can make me feel bad and and, not, and and feel like well I couldn't have possibly prepared for that, um, but it, but it, but I will also say when you go there and have a super turn it is an incredible feeling you and, you know you you get all this stuff you move up on the tech tracks which you comp there's this is a game of combos if this is a game where I do this it links into this it chains into this it hits me with you know and you you have these awesome turns where you feel like you're you know that's right there's also crushing. a pyramid track where you get bonuses for being the one who contributed the most right. to the pyramid that round. So there, there are, so that kind of makes up for somebody having a super turn, but maybe not being as fully committed to yeah. uh, building the pyramid. Yeah, Matt, the tile flip that you're talking about and complaining about, I've, I've experienced this, the same thing. And so it's going back to what we talked about in round one. Yeah. Uh, these tile flips are kind of an example both of input randomness and output randomness yep. in that once they're flipped, you can see what the symbols are and you can make decisions based upon that. That tends right. to be the type of randomness we like. But at the same time, um, you're like ready to go there. Mm -hmm. Somebody else, like, and there's the tiles you want. You're ready to go there. Someone gets there first, takes the tiles you want. They flip and you strike out where like, okay, I could have had a 12-point turn with yeah. a couple of tech bumps, and now I'm going to have a 7-point turn with no tech bumps. Right. Um, and so that's an example of uh, output randomness. Right. Yeah. And the discovery tiles, too, do that as well. But they're, they're a little less egregious to me in the sense that 
you can't go there again. So, you know, if I go to a tile and there's a discovery tile there and I lock my die and I take a discovery tile, if a good one comes out next, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't stay there and take it. So I, I don't mind that as much because it's, it, yeah, I'm not I, sure I, it's I'm, wrong. It's just, yeah. it is, it is a bit of randomness in yeah. the game um, that can swing. Yeah. It's the only for you or against part. You. Yeah. yeah. And so there is, there's two other things I want to talk about. There's, there's, uh, end of round scoring, which I think is interesting. You do sort of something that I, you don't see in many modern euros, which is a, a, a mini end game scoring that happens twice th- before the actual end game scoring. It actually happens three times for the end during game the eclipses, right? So during each eclipse, you do a little mini scoring and you score the temple track, the, uh, sorry, the pyramid track and you score the path of the dead track. Now the, the, uh, the, the pyramid track resets every round. So whatever progress you made on it goes back to zero. But the Path of the Dead track does not. And yet I, that part of the game to me is where I'd really like to see an actual strategy because I really enjoy that aspect of it. There's a fun racing of your uh, your, your workers to ascend them to get higher up on it. There are some discovery tiles that add to it. But I, I've, I've played, I probably played the game five, six times as well. And a, at least two of them I've tried to really focus on Path of the Dead and also mix it with masks, which we'll talk about. And I haven't found that it's possible to actually make that work without really also giving up one of those two things for the pyramid. I guess what I'm saying is there is n- it's definitely not better to just do the pyramid <laughs> instead of doing Path of the Dead. Sure. Uh, I tried that once and I learned my lesson. <laughs> right. So the, the, one of the interesting things about Path of the Dead is you only want to do it when you're the only one doing it. Because the more times you build these buildings, the worse points you're getting for being up on the path of the dead. So the amount of buildings that are built out on the board um, directly correlates to how many right. points you get being Rewards up Rewards counterpunching. Right. right. So the minute you do, so what I've found happens every time is I'm going to go all in on path of the dead, but then somebody just goes a little bit in on it and my points go down, you know, exponentially. So I would have gotten 40 points and then Paul goes, oh, by doing this action twice, I can have Matt's points and basically now he makes 20 and okay well so it's just too easy to knock somebody's feet out from under them when they're when they're all in on a strategy it it takes one or two actions to utterly destroy somebody's entire strategy with Path of the Dead so to me it's it's not something you should ever go all in on it's something you want to do a little bit of and other people the the more you do it the more of a target you're going to put on your back and it's very easy to knock you out uh, whereas the pyramid strategy, there's no downsides to it. Whether you're decorating the pyramid, which is another cool element of it, where you're putting these little steps on the pyramid or building the pyramid themselves, not only are you getting points for doing those things, but you're also getting points for moving up on that track. Um, there's just literally no downsides to it, and nobody can you know hurt you for it. You're, you know, other than maybe you're speeding up the game, which doesn't help your strategy. But uh, so the the other strategy, the last one is masks. So that is a, an element of set collection in this game. There are a handful of different masks in this game that have no purpose other than end game set collection. And you do score your masks every eclipse, just like the other things. Um, that's a little bit of randomness as well, because you don't know when they're going to come out. You don't necessarily know you're going to get all of them, but I don't mind that because it's a long game and you have time to, you know, you, you, if you really want to, you'll definitely see all but one of them probably. And when you're advancing up the tech tracks, um, you do have um, a selection of discovery tiles yep. at various steps and you can look through them. Mm-hmm. There's a stack of two, three, four. Yeah, they're random, but you still have some kind of choice there. Uh, I, I want to say that 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 this is an example for me of like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands and hitting the home run mm-hmm. into that space because Daniel Toschini said we know what he intended to do with this game, which is to create a a, 
a newer, more streamlined version of Token, and I think he succeeded 100%, or she. He, yeah, the game has been out for uh, a couple of months now, uh, probably since Essen, and it is one away from cracking the top 100 on BGG. It's, it ranked at 101 right now, 61 in strategy. I think this is a top 100 game for a very long time. I think it gets in the top 100 quickly, and I don't think it leaves there for three, four, five years. I think this is uh, a, a really, really solid medium with one tiny toe into heavy. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think this is heavier than... The, I mean, to me, when I think medium weight games, I think Concordia. Concordia is straight up medium weight game. I think of Coimbra, straight up medium weight game. This is a hair's breadth heavier than that, but not, but not enough where it would scare off someone who loves those games. I hear you say that, and I said three hours, heavy, medium. To me, when I play it, it feels like fast. It's it a, feels yeah, like it's intu- a 90-minute game, even though I know it, it's longer. Well, that's one thing it, I'll say. It feels fast. Turns are quick. Turns are very quick in this game. There is not, there's never a huge amount of uh, of record keeping or, or you know, you're, yes, you can have little combos, but they're pretty fast. I mean, you move your die, take your thing, done. You're, you're basing this on having multiple plays now, Dimitri. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the first time you play this, it's a one-hour teach. Yeah. And looking at the board, it's beautiful, but it's a lot. This Visually, there's a ton going on here and yeah, especially when you talk about room. like for a non-gamer this this is just going to be this wall of color and symbols that's going to be too much um you have to have a certain kind of baseline of board gaming experience i think for this to be immediately kind of sure accessible. that that makes it's also a table hog you do need a big table for this one this one takes up a lot of space um there is an expansion coming out uh probably oh. at essen this year uh, it is called Teotihuacan Late Pre-Classic Period, which seems like jumbo shrimp to me. I don't really know what that means. Uh, but this, the main element of this is asymmetrical player powers, much like Zulkin's expansion was at first, which is gives everybody a starting rule-breaking power. Um, I'm very excited to this. My hope for this game is that it makes Path of the Dead uh, more viable and more interesting. Um, I know it's adding a fourth tech track to the game, and this fourth tech track is all about ongoing powers. So I think this could help oh, balance the actual the, the technology tile room. And now when the farther you move up on this, the more rule-breaking powers you will be opening up. So a more classic tech track than sort of the resource tracks they have now. Um, I think this is a game that, uh, much like Zolkin, I think the 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 expansion of Zulkin took it over the top of being sort of a, a, an incredible game. Um, and I think uh, we have a shot with that one here. Matt, how much does this cost? Uh, that's a good question. Let's see right now. Amazon is selling Teo to walk on for, I'm going to guess $40. Uh, or... It is selling for $45 right now. It's a $50 game, but your OLGSs, your online gaming stores usually sell at about 10% less. I, I would say judging by the quality of the components, that's, no, this, is a, this is a uh, this I would I would not balk at this being a seventy five dollar game. Um, I think it's a very fair price at fifty, uh, even if you buy it retail. So that's Teo to walk on. Uh, final thoughts, guys. Uh, one of the best games of two thousand eighteen. Yeah, I think it. I mean, Spudijar doesn't always reflect our tastes yep. in games, but I would certainly put it up there um it, i would be on my list yeah i can't see this ever leaving my collection beautiful board design uh beautiful artwork uh that you can grasp at a glance but has character um 
in and of itself that completely fits the story of the game. Yeah. That was our review of Teotihuacan City of Gods. Let's move on to our top 10. Uh, Dimitri's going to hit us with our questions, and uh, he's going to uh, ask us his top 10 questions about board games. And Trey and I are going to do our best to answer it. We are uh, already running a little long. I'm not going to rush you on this, but we had some other things we might talk about. We might be uh, rushing through those. I actually have a top 12, and uh, Trey is going to roll a 12-sided die 10 times. This was always part of the reason I wanted to invite him. This is an example (laughs) of random input, but he's also going to... Do we something do, he hates. We do have a 12-sided die, and Trey is going to roll. And uh, that will determine which 10 questions I will ask. So two will this be left off. This is the real off. reason I'm here today. Is, this is, is it. To force is, me to yeah. roll a die. This is a shame. Right, I'm picking up a blue 12-sided die. It's a beautiful 12-sided Rolling die. it into a lovely letter. My favorite thing was Dimitri asked me. He goes, do you have a 12-sided die? And I just looked at him for about 10 seconds. What a stupid question. Of course I do. I am now rolling. Nine. Nine. Nine? Noin. Okay. Noin. Oh, okay. So, so, so this is actually uh, one of my insecurities. This is um, and, and, and difficulties that I have Hit deciding. Me. So um, playing games helps people bond, but it often excludes based on preference or possibly ability and can spark or heighten conflict. And we discussed this yes, today. Yes, So what does it mean for groups of players to be self-selecting? And I know that I have friends, and I'm sure that you have friends whom you would not invite to game night be- because of of their temperament or, or or a perceived level of skills. And, and I know years ago, my own temperament and skills were pretty weak. Tom invited me anyway, and thank you for that. Um, uh, and Trey, you encounter this in your situation room experience uh, when you discover that groups of people who are already familiar with each other and, and who know each other do better than groups of strangers. I feel insecurity and I feel discomfort with um, who, who's doing the selecting and are we excluding, are we being inclusive is this an issue for you? I know it would be an issue for me. I'm not totally sure I understand the question. Do you understand the question, Trey? I think he's he's raising a valid point. Um, it's something we wrestle with. I think we're going like, to likely see it a little bit like tomorrow. I think it's kind of what you're, you're talking about. Like You go to Strategicon. Sure. We've got our normal group of gamers here. Yeah. Are we just going to like stick with... You know the hateful eight. <laughs> we and usually to, to play games, or or like how many people are going to be able to like rotate into our circle, right? And do we have feelings about I don't really want to play with that person, oh, or I, I do really enjoy playing with that person? Like, yes, that's part of it, and um, you know, right? I, I feel that same tension you're talking about, where I sometimes feel guilty that we're not including some people that you can't. I mean, often these games are only for people. Um, it's hard to open up a chair. Uh, sometimes you're saying sorry, we're. F- we're full. Um, I think we'll have the opposite problem this weekend. I think we'll actually have uh, an awkward. I think we're going to have five or six of us, mm-hmm. which means we're going to have to split up. Which means mm-hmm. we're going to need a, we need to make some friends. Uh, I just feel bad that I know people that I don't feel I can invite, and, yeah. and I wonder how much of that is in my perception. Mm-hmm. No. And, and how I have I have people in my life who I uh, 
choose not to game with, or at least game specific games with. And uh, I, I think it's really about what you want out of a specific game night. Like I'm, I'm fine being very exclusionary in terms of the uh, types of gamers I bring in to my game night, because I, I use that. I have very little time for gaming. I want to play difficult games. So I'm going to bring in people who are not going to uh, require uh, a basic teach of modern gaming, right? When If I want to sit down and play Teo Te- Te- Walk On, it's, you know, well, it's going to limit our night if I have to teach it to somebody who's never played a board game before. I, w- I just wouldn't do it. It's not going to be enjoyable for them. It's not going to be enjoyable for anybody at the table. So, you know, but there are definitely times when I'm like super down to introduce somebody to board games or, or, or up their level one, you know, like I get, I can get very excited about that and I can be in the mood for that. So, and also when we go to a convention, we ask ourselves, what do I want out of this? Am I here as an ambassador of board games or am I here because this is our chance to play 18 XX, you know? And I think those are very different moods. Uh, so, you know, so yeah, it's Dimitri, you've identified that like we do have some kind of gatekeeping. Uh, Matt's going to decide who comes to his game night. Tom's going to decide who comes to his game night. I've tried bringing in a couple of friends that I get along with personally. And you've had a couple of game nights, actually. Yeah, uh, it's been, it's been yeah, a while because yeah. I don't have to. Matt and Tom provide this service. But like, I've had a couple of friends that I know from like my board game playtesting group that I tried bringing in, and it didn't work out. Like, And it wasn't my call. I mean, Tom was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that really was a good fit. And then I have other friends who it has worked out, like my friend Matt Patterson, we see him regularly mm-hmm. now um, like that that did. And I do, yep. I do think you're bringing up an issue that goes back to our very first episode here, yeah. which is kind of just acknowledging what our gaming group is. It's like we're, we're not the most diverse group of people here playing games. Like that's true. We don't have any women. We're, you know, we all from fairly similar educational yep. economic that's backgrounds here. Absolutely. It's true. But we all want to play basically the same games right except me our our filter is is, i I don't really need to say this but clearly our our filter of who's in our game group has nothing to do with gender or race Uh, our filter is really just who's responsible enough to show up on time and is down to play these games that's those are really my only two main criteria Uh, now now of course personalities come into it because but i think you're drawn to people who uh, share your interests but i I, I wouldn't if, if 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 I had not never met any of you. I don't necessarily know if before gaming, if if each of one of us had gone to have a lunch together to decide if we want to be friends, if we would have come to the same conclusions that we came to after sitting across the table from each other for years playing games. Well, I can say that with certainty because I've actually made friends with a lot of you before a game uh, game night started, right. and I hope I would be your friend um, if we if we met at the lunch or something uh, like that. I, I, I think all of us would, If, but I'm just saying, would you have chosen to spend that much time together from the jump if gaming was not the uh, the, the lubricant that brought us all together? It is, you're absolutely right. Game night is an engine for building relationships, yeah. which is why I'm so uncomfortable excluding people from that chance yeah. based on how well they roll dice. Well, it comes up a lot. I I, I read the board game Reddit a lot. These questions come up a lot on board game Reddit. The question would be an example of, hi, I have a weekly board game group. Um, Somebody has started coming recently who is uh, a very slow learner of games. They are kind, but 
we have to, our games take twice as long when they join us. And I've noticed that some people have stopped coming because of that. Not because they don't enjoy this person's company, but because they don't have five hours to play a two hour game. What do I do? So that happens a lot. Or even I've, I've, you know, you will often find people who have, uh, personality types that can be either aggressive or shy or just ones that can make the game experience different. So what do you do? Do you choose not to play with that person? Do you have an honest conversation with that person, which, you know, from a a place of peace and kindness and love, uh, or do you find a way to make it clear to that person you don't want to play with them? And And what is the right move? What is the right move for the group for everyone? You know, and those are very difficult things to talk about. Yes. Um, and there's no right answer, really. I mean, um, I that's think as why long as asked, the right answer always comes from kindness and honesty, yeah, I think that's that's why as I asked the questions. Do. I don't think any of them have any of these yeah. have a right answer. We exclude on both ends, both people that kind of like couldn't get up to speed quick enough, and we are by far not the most competitive board gamers in the LA scene at all. I have a number of friends who like will see some women at the con who are honestly like better, more competitive players than our group. We're not the most competitive group. Yeah. Yes. Trey. Second time. Rolling the blue 12-sided die again. And this is random input, <laughs> this is correct? So this is random input. Fun. This is input. No, this is uh, output randomness. Well, I'm not making deci- <laughs> we're not making a decision based upon what the die comes up and then saying, what are we going to do? I'm Maybe rolling. this is random throughput? <clears throat> random shot put? I'm rolling the die. I think you're just rolling a 12-sided die. Number three. three. Yay! This is a very serious question. Uh, why is chess a game that's played in total silence? And every other game is an opportunity for socializing or listening to music. Is it the game equivalent of pro bowling and golf? Uh, your premise is completely wrong. Um, yes, a lot of chess is played in complete silence, but plenty of chess is not. Uh, you see people playing in the park. Sure, Plumber Park plenty of and U- Washington YouTube Park. videos. Uh, it's just a question of whether you're uh, explicitly kind of like ruling it out. And if you don't, there will pl- be plenty of people that will talk and use that uh, to their advantage if they feel like it's an advantage. Um, it's some chess the, players never shut up. It's also the environment of the game. If it's a tournament where there are stakes, people are going to really want to focus and concentrate. I think you'd find the same thing if you go upstairs on Strategicon on Saturday and go to an Agricola tournament. I don't think you'll see a person say a word to another person at that table during the whole game. I mean, I think they're, for the most part, going to be very seriously concentrating, especially if it's the finals or something like that. So I think you could find that level of silence in, in high, highly competitive parts of board gaming. I'm going to crash some symbols at, at the tournament of Agricola. Yeah, that'll go well. Trey, uh, please roll the die for a third time. <laughs> Yay, rolling the door. Number seven. seven. Lucky seven. Move the robber. Seven. So, so, so this is like an speculative question um and basically are game mechanisms like working placement or set collection created or discovered uh, by observing the real world or borrowed from science or math and, and the reason i'm asking that question is because game stories model reality uh when we play gallerists we're modeling uh selling art when we play kanban we model making cars uh uh, are the tools um, that games use um, to model reality also real? 
also taken from reality, also exist outside of games. Do they come from simulation? Is that what you're saying? Do they come from observing the real world? Does a worker placement or set collection come from this is how you actually uh, use workers uh, if you're the CEO? Uh, or is set collection something, a deep thing that people have been doing since they've been gathering herbs and flowers mm-hmm. as cavemen? So... <laughs> Um, I I think it's a fairly serious question because if that's true, uh, if those tools that games use to model reality are not arbitrary, uh, then games could be useful for training and exploring real-life situations. Whereas if they are arbitrary, if if they are uh, like constructs of convenience, then games are fine for, uh, you know, spending a good time, but not really useful for uh, the purposes of exploring what reality is of a, of a particular situation that they're depicting. Trey, you want to jump in on this one? <clears throat> I think it's a really huge question uh, that we can't even begin to do justice to yeah, you do a college 90s. course on, on game history yeah. and, and psycho and human psychology and i think and what you're you're asking a lot, there's a lot of spinoffs from this question but you are going kind of straight to the um board game design um core question of like what are you starting with you right. starting with theme and then building mechanics that support that theme and help replicate it as as you say do we learn stuff about real life from games hopefully uh i tend to love games that uh, have some kind of beautiful interaction between theme and uh, mechanism, Mechanisms, yeah. right? Like that's, I rate those games. That's like very important to me, but we also know plenty of designers that tend to start with certain mechanisms and then they're going to find a theme and I, those tend to feel a little less engaging mm-hmm. to me, but there are plenty of good games that have come out that way. I feel like, well, let's, let's look at worker placement. Right? The first worker placement game is Kalos, right? Uh, I can't, it's one of the early ones, so I don't know if it's the first okay. or something, but sure. Uh, or, or bus, I think, might also be one of the one of the first one of those. But the, yeah, around that area, so to me, worker placement, the word worker is not necessarily relevant. It, it's decision space limiting, right? It's at, it, there. There, are, there sure. are possible choices you can make, and you will have less and uh, maybe less beneficial than you want when it comes to your turn. Kalis is like a monopoly map, right? It's a map. It's a road. So you could think about Monopoly, but all of a sudden, what if certain these spaces, well, I guess sort of like Monopolies, will get blocked along the way. Uh, and, and now you can't go there. You have to go somewhere else instead. Um, and that is a mechanism in, mo- in, a, in traditional worker placement, that if you go there first, no one else can take that action. Is that real? Is that something that comes from real life? Well, or it, brings, it, 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 it makes you feel that feeling of, of competing over resources right that, that's true but uh, uh, that's about scarcity right and, mm-hmm. and and there are even questions whether scarcity is real or or, or just a consequence of right. capitalism right uh, trey i want to specifically ask you because uh i'm a huge fan of 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 uh, the situation room experience uh the situation room experience when you play it feels incredibly real uh do you feel that the mechanisms that you employed uh, while constructing this incredibly complex, uh, it, it just 
engrossing and engulfing experience also come from real politics, real politic, uh, or, or do they come from uh, other games, or, or is it a combination of the two? Did you? I'm sure you thought about it uh, uh, while you were constructing it. Yeah, I mean that's um, it's different than board games, obviously, because this is essentially like doing a LARP, but doing a LARP in which people's decisions um, you can quantify them. Mm-hmm. You know, a way that like the computer or the, the 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 engine that's running the game can kind of take what are social decisions and turn them into something that's comprehensible that will produce um, feedback that's um, specific. So. Uh, it's a it's a big question, but yes, th- that game is heavily heavily modeled. Where it's important to going into the situation room feels like we're in the situation room and that we're making the kind of decisions that we would in real life. And I'm posing decisions to people in which they make kind of fundamental choices that will affect uh, the output of the game. And so, making it feel real, making it feel like a real decision, um, is a tremendously important part of it. And but it's the mechanics are actually pretty simple in in that game. They're designed to be simple and support the social interaction that goes into making the decisions in the first place. Cool. Uh, please roll the die for your fourth turn. Rolling the die. Is your wrist getting uh, tired? Did we repeat? You whiffed. No, you no. Rolled a one. You rolled a one. You died. That's right. Uh, so the one is uh, a question that. Matt makes a lot of fun of me for. Oh, it's a speculation. Oh, uh, and, and it's, why haven't I heard of any lawyer games? There are architect games, city planning games, zoning games, parliament games, shipping games, train games, but no courtroom games that I know of. And, and to me, a courtroom, because it's all about rules, you, you know, you're competing, there's always a, a winner and a loser, um, is uh, a ripe subject for lawyers. Uh, there's even uh, a law and economics school um, started by a famous judge, Richard Posner, who claims that all common law decisions uh, are basically codifications of basic economic principles. So why isn't there a lawyer game? Is it something I'm missing? Is it just so dreary that nobody would I, I will play say it? this. There are no lawyer games that I have played or that uh, are, are wildly popular, but I will now read to you a list of, uh, of games that we've never are heard of. Are you shaming me? Are you shaming me? There's a me game now. called Verdict. Uh, be a courtroom lawyer uh, in a legal game, it says. There's a game called Lawsuit. There's a game called Trial. Point of Law, Trial Lawyer, Capital Punishment, Attorney Power, Legal Decision, You Be the Judge, Guilty Party, do little and wait. <laughs> the People's Court. <laughs> Sue for a million. The Perry Mason game. The L.A. Law game. Blind Justice. Law Courts. The Lawyers game. Okay, Sue okay, you. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I saw, I saw this question. I, I was trying to figure out if, if Dimitri was punking us okay. with, this, with this question. Um, I can see what you're saying. On its face, why would anyone want to play a lawyer game? But then again, we do play games about like container ships. So like dry theme doesn't rule stuff out from board games. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, deduction games are lawyer games in a yeah. sense. Uh, no, but I, I, these are games of argument. Yes. And then, and then people would have to kind of like judge which is the better argument. And I think that that um, is particularly unsuited to board games. Like the closest thing we have to that is, are games like Apples to Apples or uh, uh, Cards Against Humanity, um, where like... Uh, the argument you're making is the card you play mm-hmm. here, and then people judge. Um, There's a great video game series called Phoenix Wright that was uh, for the Nintendo DS and I think a couple other Nintendo systems. But it is a game where you are a lawyer and you are given cases and you must win the case. Oh, and it's a sort of a, a text-driven story game. Okay, but, but that, you do have sounds... to make choices and make arguments and then prove, you know, your case and. That sounds interesting. And lawyers, of course, themselves engage in LARPs. They're called moot court all the time. Um, I've thought about this question, and I I actually have a little bit of an answer for myself, and and that is these uh, dry games about boarding topics that are actually exciting to play uh, are often designed in Europe. Uh, in Germany and Italy, mm-hmm. and they have very different legal systems from ours. They're statutory rather than common law based, so they wouldn't translate so much. That's interesting. Yeah, that could uh, be. It. I mean, there it's there's very different systems of law in every country. But it's a it's a such a ripe topic. Well, uh, Trey, there are a lot of designers listening, so maybe they'll start thinking about a good lawyer game. I'm not sure other people feel like this is a ripe. Topic. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, what I would Again, say is, if you feel this way, then you should do a lawyer game. Like you, sh- you should design one, and then you'll have a better understanding of why. Like, I could. Here's the thing: like, you don't want to do a trial, right? Like, the game is not a trial, a trial. But I could no. see a game where you say, "Okay, we're all assistant district attorneys, and we're competing for like a conviction rate or something like that." Sure. We're having different, and like you're jockeying for getting certain cases from the DA. Uh, you know, like, are you going to plea this? Are you going to try it out? Yeah, plea bargaining is a great mechanism for. Okay, a game. I feel like we're designing a game here, like that. Uh, Trey, that's you're starting, designing. That's, you're designing the game, and be, that's because okay, you're so, a game uh, designer. There, game there was called a, ADA was coming a, soon. A thread on, or there could be a whole game called Passing the Bar, which is all about studying and passing the bar. Uh, there's a thread on Board Game Geek that says, "Are there any games for lawyers or legally themed?" And someone just wrote, "No, lawyers don't have friends." <laughs> That's true. They're too busy drinking. That's true. So, so Trey, uh, for the fifth time. Three we did already. We Re-roll did already, in. yes. Number two. Number two. Uh, okay, so this is an interesting question. This is an insecurity we'll question, we'll possibly. Uh, it's a serious question. Oh. Why is there such an affinity between board gaming and fantasy science fiction? Uh, really, I, I mean, we just assume that we take that for granted. But games are based on real-world economic principles: scarcity, worker placement, territory control. Uh, and why is there such a strong connection with the freewheeling magic or futurism well, I, I would of say, genre fiction? I would say there isn't. Uh, I, I would say the history of board games had none of that. Board games in America for the last hundred years were Monopoly, Clue, Sorry. Life, Yahtzee. I mean, none of those games have anything to do with fantasy or science fiction. I know, but I don't know anybody personally who's seriously into board games who is not also a fantasy science fiction fan 90, or vice versa. 95 to 99% of board games designed by Germans or released in Germany do not have a fantasy theme at all because, in fact, those themes sell very poorly in Germany. 
Uh, Interesting. They've been, there's been many interviews I've read or seen where designers are asked, why don't you have a more fun theme? And they just simply say, well, German families aren't interested in that. They want a trading in the Mediterranean theme. They're, they don't, you know, something about dwarves and elves and ninjas can often make it feel, I guess, to some uh, Europeans as uh, childish. The thing, I think this actually goes, the thing that came up to me goes back to our previous conversation on modeling. Um, if you were trying to make a game about a real world thing, then in a sense, that's a constraint. And we can argue about whether constraints are a good thing or a bad thing. This is something that came up with this second scenario I was designing for the Situation Room Experience, Washington's Cabinet. Set in 1793, I'm dealing with real historical figures as opposed to fictional ones. That means I'm really limited in my design space about the stuff that I can make happen. It needs to be realistic. It might even have to be based upon history. If you're kind of creating a game in which you want certain things to be acted out, by placing it into a fantasy world or a science fiction world, you have complete freedom to say this is what the world is and kind of like what the rules of the reality of the fiction, uh, as opposed to being completely constrained by, like, say if I was doing my lawyer game, my ADA game that we were just talking about there, and I'm starting to design it, um, you're going to say at some point, looking at this, Trey, that's not how that actually works. Like, that's that's not how the law works. That's not how a DA's office works. And you don't want to hear that. Well, it might be limiting the game of what's actually fun, whereas if it's fantasy court... Legolas, district attorney. <laughs> well, suddenly, though, I mean, like, I've got that freedom to make that change right. for the kind of more fun and rewarding gameplay, and nobody's saying, but that's not model. You're, not, you're no longer modeling reality at that point. I think there are certain types of gamers as well, and I think this was born out of Dungeons & Dragons, who, for their relaxing time, want not only to strategize and play with strategy and tactics, but also want to escape into a world that is not their own, right? And I think board games allow that portal into a LARP experience. Even if you're just rolling dice, you know, your avatar on the board is a hero with a sword. And for a lot of people, that is a very enjoyable and relaxing way to spend your time. I think that also maybe uh, fantasy and science fiction explicitly deal with world building. Do you feel like he had his own answer to this question? Absolutely. <laughs> Do you feel like he asked a question so he could answer it? Go ahead, well, Dimitri. What's the answer to the question? Please, it's let, his me. List. It's let his list. me. Let me. I don't think it's a complete answer, but I, I, I think that when I read Lord of the Rings, when I when I read Asimov's Foundation, uh, they're as much about the world, the galaxy, or Middle Earth as they are about any of the characters. And um, for a board game designer, somebody interested in, in games, they're designing a world. Uh, and it's a type of world building that's very present already as a separate component of fantasy and science fiction that's not necessarily a separate component of um a regular fiction like Jane Austen. It is a component uh, of Ulysses. You know, he's describing uh, Dublin uh, on a day and he pretty much preserving and recreating Dublin. But if you're trying to uh, create a game based on Jane Austen, you you have to do the world building from scratch. Someone because did that novel, this year, a game called Obsession. Yes, whereas if you're building, a, uh, if you're creating a world based on a game based on Lord of the Rings, you have an entire world that's already there for you that's available. That's true. It's a quick, uh, it's sort of a, you can jump right in. Everybody sort of knows the setting in the world. They can picture sure. it. Yeah. Sure. 
Good question. Let's roll that die. I'll try not to answer my question. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Number six. Number six. Oh, this is more of a complaint and, and, and like a philosophical pain. It's like, why does almost every serious game have a power-up mechanism, like family growth or adding workers or ex- more experienced workers, uh, engine building? Um, I mean, in real life um, or even in narratives, you you lose power. You get more and more desperate as things continue and things fall apart. Uh, or for the, for the hero in the movie, you get more and more injured and things get more and more desperate until suddenly in the reversal you win. Um, well, because you're building an engine in games. It's about creating something from scratch and watching it come to life. Sure, but I... Also I, imagine I, that, that it's not a power-up. Imagine that you, that the designer limited you at the beginning and then it's now a struggle to become whole again. It just feels that if... That so many games uh, and the the majority of games are powering it up are powering up yeah. that they lose out on a major kind of component maybe a sad component but <laughs> something that well, you know it, a human I think experience. You just, you put your finger it on may it not. Like, that's not um, building up your power. I think most people find that pleasurable. Mm-hmm. That might be fun if you were going to play a, a, narr- a some drama in which we go from a position of power into one of poverty. That doesn't that doesn't sound that fun to me. Well, most people game, at least especially in video games, because they want a feeling that is hard to achieve in life, which is progress, which is to see growth and to build on something and to improve. And in a video game or a board game offers you follow these steps and you will. Life is not like that. Life is life is like you could work your hardest and still fail. Let's talk about your examples though. Um, what, chess, checkers? You start with pieces. Generally, it goes down, right? Uh, sure, unless you power up when you... Right, but that's the, the general yeah. narrative is like, what have I lost? What have I lost? What sure. have I lost? Sure. When you start powering up, that's often very end game and kind of locks in the win. So um, it, it, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't it doesn't happen. You're not engine building in chess. Yeah, you're position building. You're hopefully degrading your opponent quicker than you yourself or right. degrading your own resources. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not impossible. Um, but I think that it does kind of just go to pleasure and fun. People just want to feel like they're doing something and improving, and you know, D and D is modeling all about reality up. to model reality. In in a game called Eclipse, there is a race of aliens. Uh, I forget what they're called, the ancient ones that mm-hmm. starts out super powered, and then they they start out with all the money in the world. Start out exactly, and then they kind of yeah. gradually lose it, and and you have, they have to, to struggle convert against their initial it. resources into some kind of engine. Yeah, I, I wish I had played at least. Some games that have that kind of dynamic, it seems to be underexplored. Okay. Roll that die. Are you enjoying it? Are, are we changing your mind about three uh, again? About This die is loaded. Six well, we're starting to run out of options here. We did that two, three yes. in a row that Jeez. we have already rolled. Four. Four. We're, we're very close to just saying, Dimitri, just pick one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there. I think we did it. Uh, okay, so uh, this is another perfect question for Trey uh, about game design. So, is this the racist one? No. Okay. Sorry. No, <laughs> it, it, I will ask the racist if you'd like me to. Nope. Uh, it, so, 
is Scrabble a lasting millennial millennium scale game like chess, go backgammon, or playing cards that people will be playing in hundreds of years? Are there other possible candidates, or is it possible that we won't be playing anything that we're playing now? This is one of your big questions. Uh, didn't you say this was designed for Trey? No, that was the last <laughs> one. Uh, will, are, there, are we playing any games we're playing in 100 years the same way we're playing chess? Is Scrabble. Scrabble feels pretty eternal. It does feel eternal to me. Am I... I mean, maybe we la- won't be reading anymore and we won't know what letters language are. Language changes, uh, but they, they update that with the, they have the new yeah. Scrabble dictionaries it that come out every eternal. year. It feels pretty eternal. It's not, it's not a game I enjoy. It's the game my girlfriend Jenny wants to play every time. Are there other games like Scrabble right now? You, you, you think you'd like think to Wingspan, nominate? Wingspan, Wingspan will be playing in 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I will be choking on those candy eggs for a long time i think avalon um you guys will be paying in 100 years <laughs> avalon's uh, not oh, sorry. a bad answer I, avalon's I, not a bad answer avalon is a game that takes 100 years to play so that would answer that uh i think scrabble's a really good candidate sure. for something that that's will still the be best played in 100 yeah, years yeah, exactly sure. okay and fortnite okay uh, i'm gonna pick oh, go ahead oh no no pick pick yeah just please pick. please please just pick. Pick. Uh, okay uh so uh, um I'm asking this question because I want Parker Brothers to create a Harriet Tubman uh, monopoly where every piece of money has her face on it. Oh, uh, I so feel I, like I'm going to be editing this out. And I'll buy two and I'll send it to the White House. But in any case, uh, we know that monopoly is horrible. It's terrible. It has all these no, bad choices and it's mistakes. Not. Why is it so popular? Is it easy to learn? Uh, is, uh, what makes this real estate game, which you know seems like a very European German kind of theme, uh, why do non gamers like it? I don't necessarily know if they like it as much as it, they know it. They already own it. It's in their parents' house. They played it as a child, and so it's sticky. It's, the, yeah, it's culturally it's just, sticky. It's just sticky. It's just it's just it's prolific. It's everywhere. You can learn it in thirty seconds. So it's historical, and, and it's also very generational. Stress. It takes almost no thinking. You just roll the die, and your only decision is: Am I spending money when I land there, or and am I? Doing listen, nothing? as like as modern Euro gamers, we like to beat up on Monopoly, but there's a lot of really good reasons that Monopoly has been such a popular I loved Monopoly game. when I was 10. Loved it. I so played did it I. constantly. So did I. Uh, so what in, are those reasons? Well, I, there's, there's actually some people have written about this a lot. You know, there's some great defenses of Monopoly. I think uh, the main thing that people don't appreciate about Monopoly is that some of the most exciting things in the game happen on someone else's turn. You know, think about any games we play where we are waiting for me to go, and I don't really care what the rest of you are doing That's until I get point. to my turn. That's right. In Monopoly, somebody's rolling a die. You're you are watching that die. Praying they land on please your Please hit Park Place and yeah. give me a lot of money. And yeah. so I think that kind of constant involvement where you really care about what's happening on someone else's turn is one mm-hmm. of the main strengths. That's a game. great point. I've never thought about that. You're right. And there's it's a, not an original one. It's yeah. There's a, there's a gambling stuff, right? element to it as well, of course. And, you know, there, there's also, there's a fun progression. You are building this empire and watching it grow. And it's great getting the deeds and mm-hmm. stacking and those building up, stuff on it. Upgrading you, from a hotel, from a, you know, houses to hotels progress i have my little the paper money is fun you got a big pretend like i'm a millionaire yeah exactly 
There's, there's, and there's, then you bankrupt your family members. There's a lot That's of LARPing that pleasure. happens. Everybody LARPs Monopoly when they play it. Everyone pretends they're the Mr. Monocle Man. Oh, come to Park Place. At least I they're, do. Cool. It's not a bad game. No, it's not. It's just not a game that once you, if you like games and you have been shown other games, you would want to play. There's just cool. better versions. Parker Brothers put out a Harriet Tubman edition. Uh, will board games outlast video games? Um, I, I'm old enough to remember how video games crashed when Atari went bankrupt in, in, in the mid-80s and then had a huge resurgence that I attribute to the fact that the technology improved and, and, and graphics improved. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. V- video games are never going away. Board games will never supplant them. Board games will never take, will never have 5% of their market share. Do, do you think board games at some point will crash and can any advance bring a game-changing improvement to the way it did for video games? I think the distinctions you're making are going to cease to matter between these two things. Potentially. In, in 100 years, I think it's highly unlikely that we will have physical board games. We will have apps. I don't know. Right? I, well, I, I mean, outside of a massive changing to our concept of how we deal with reality, I, I think... Um, I think I think the reason you're seeing the the golden age of board games right now is a direct response to the amount of screen time that we because all we have. actually want FaceTime or, or right? you, you want something physical and analog. To touch. Want, yeah, exactly. Like so these I, I, beautiful I th- blocks. I think of, board yeah. game resurgence is a response to video games and phones to a certain extent. So I don't know. I mean, to me, what what. The reason I, I, I like them a lot, and I think the reason that I'm so drawn to them at this point is because I spend 12 hours a day staring at a computer screen. So I don't know. I just think it's very possible that in 100 years, rather than have, well, this table that we're playing at will be a, you know, a video table, probably in 3D. But what will I unbox? You won't. What, what will I organize, Trey? What folded space inserts will I glue together? Yeah, that would that would be my guess, and and like the, the, the distinctions we're making right now, I think will start to fall away a little bit more. The, the, board games are an idea; like you have the game when you play the game, it's really in your head, and the physical pieces are just a representation of the game that you're playing in your head, and that's yeah. But we're all living in a simulation anyway, so this yeah. this is just really good graphics. Next question, Copper Top. Okay, uh, this is the last question. Um, can you be really good at board games? and be a board game prodigy without knowing how to read or do math. Is there, is there like a specific gaming intellectual smart skill that some people like could Nell or Tarzan be really good at board games? Uh, Another way of asking this is, are is board game skills, a combination of your language and math skills? And that's all it is, uh, or is it? This is there another unknown significant component? And the reason I ask is, uh, you know, Tom is great at board games. Paul is great at board games. Um, uh, most of us are, in fact, all of us, I would argue, are really good at board games. Is there a separate skill? Like, like if a child plays the violin, if a child can draw really well Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a talent Mm -hmm. and and, and we consider talents to be separate from uh, reading and math you know a a child can play a violin I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily going to say that uh, she's great at reading and great at math she could be a violin prodigy Uh, 
um, is there a talent from board games distinct from uh, skills like learning skills? I mean, in terms of like our strategy and tactics, something that are innate to somebody in the way that a, a, a prodigy to music can instantly, you know, understand how note scales work. And, and uh, I, I don't know, because I don't think it's as monolithic as music. I mean, music is math. Trey, uh, I, I think you have some experience in this because uh, most of the participants uh, in the Situation Room uh, are kids, they're older kids, but but they're still kids. Uh, and when I've observed them a couple of times, I feel I felt that after ten minutes, I could like pick out right. somebody with a talent for for just doing the situation room. Um, uh, but right, is the is the talent doing the situation room, or does this person have talent that you'd like want to hire in your business? Like you know, this is somebody who I'd like to work with. Have- sure. That again. That's separate from math, and, and, and the same way that you want to hire someone who's really gifted at playing violin uh, to be in your orchestra. Yeah, but there's. I mean, it just depends on the game. I mean, somebody who's really good at chess wouldn't necessarily be really good at at, at trace simulation. I mean, they're just totally different different things. It, your brain is recognizing. It's a good question. I don't. I don't have a a good answer for you. I think we see plenty of people that are very good at board games that are lacking in other parts of social intelligence. So I do think you can kind of map this out where it's not just some kind of, you know, across the board ability. Um, I don't know. My mind went to somebody like Josh Waitzkin here who was, you know, a child chess prodigy. And like, so that's kind of the idea is like, can, you know, sees the game and gets really good at it really quickly, clearly has a talent. Yeah, or Jesse, who was a child chess prodigy. Mm-hmm. Right, and we learned something about his backstory about like why that is, too. Um, and then, you know, Josh Wichkin, as he grew up, he did not become Bobby Fischer, but he did end up being really exceptional at a lot of things. He was an excellent writer. He became a world champion, uh, was it uh, Aikido? Okay. Oh, like he took his competitiveness in chess and wanted to apply it in another area. And so I don't know whether this is depressing, but it's, I, it's, it's like, well, he was just exceptional and he was able to apply himself to what he wanted to apply. He had a good so, early game in chess, <laughs> but he stalled out in the mid to late game. A little bit, but it, may, it also may have just gotten boring. Sure. You know, um, sure. yeah, no, so, definitely passion is a huge part of it. I don't know. I don't, I don't think you can be a great board game player and not be very intelligent. I think that's not possible. Well, then there's no hope for me. (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) Trey, thank you for rolling the dice. Uh, Thank you for being my guest. That was my pleasure. For the segment. Uh, And uh, Thank you. Those are great questions, Dimitri. Uh, Why on this night do we recline while on all other nights? We do not. Uh, I'm and gonna... we welcome Trey into our Passover <laughs> into our, circle our Passover today. Circles, the Goyashika here today. Uh, let's talk about games for non-gamers. I'm going to do this briefly because we are running long. I'm just going to give you guys a quick... As long as we have the non-gamer here and as long as we're doing lists, I couldn't think of a better time to bring this up. So uh, I believe that everyone has one game that they would love if they found it. People who don't like games, there is one Holy Grail game that would become their favorite game. Good luck finding that game. You're not going to find it. 
mostly because the person who doesn't care about games has no interest in putting in the work to find that perfect game. Dimitri's perfect game is Tichu. He would love I to found play this mine. game. Yes. He found it. My father, for example, lived in Indonesia for 20 years. I've told my dad about Indonesia, the board game. Even though it is a complicated splatter game, my dad would genuinely love to sit down and play this game, and I think he would enjoy it. Uh, so, but finding that grail game is not always going to be easy. So instead, I'm going to give you a couple rules to follow in terms of how to play games with non-gamers. First rule, don't. They don't want to. Do something else. If, if you really want to try, here are some rules. Make it about them. Make it about their enjoyment, not yours. Find a theme that resonates personally with them or a style of game that you think would perfectly go to them. There is no rules here outside of just it's going to be very specific to the person. For example, my father lived in Indonesia for 20 years, so a game all about Indonesia would be something that he would be very interested in. He would enjoy it. Siafajit. Exactly. Uh, rules that could be taught in under a minute. Don't pick a game that literally pick only teach games that can be taught in a minute. Uh, and you know, this is rule two rule one, obviously Indonesia cannot be taught in a minute, but that person will be interested in it because of those reasons, their personal reasons. Um, the eye glaze over is a, a thing you want to avoid at all costs. I hate, I will stop teaching a game if I look over and just see that I've lost somebody because I don't, it's not gonna be good for them. It's not gonna be good for me. Let's play something else or let's do something else. Avoid that. eye glaze over. I glaze over will never happen under one minute. But at a minute and two seconds, if they're not interested, you'll start seeing it. Uh, also realize that most non-gamers probably appreciate creativity more than competition. Uh, a lot of non-gamers, the reason they're non-gamers is they may not enjoy that feeling of competition. So maybe finding games that uh, are all about creativity or expressing themselves or or cooperation are going to be uh, better games. So here are 10 games that I think you could literally pull out with anybody. Anybody. Even somebody who goes, I don't want to play games. Probably don't pull it out with them because why, why would you want to do something they don't want to do? But if they're just showing like, okay, well, show me what you got. Here are 10 games I think you could do well. First game is Code Names. This is a game for four people. This is a game about how well you know somebody else. This is a game about relationships and bonding. It, it can be taught in a minute. It's a very simple game, and it's, it's really a game that is designed to elicit laughter. Splendor is also a the, the most gamey game on this whole list. It's an actual game, but I could teach it in a minute. Set collection. And it's very simple. Do this, take these, trade these in for other things. It's a fun game. You can talk while you play it. You can catch up while you play it. Uh, next is Cockroach Poker. I, I could teach this in 10 seconds. Uh, guess what? This is just liar's dice. This is just a laughing game of trying to see if somebody's lying to it's you. It's a bluffing game, though. Yeah. It can really hurt. Yeah, potentially. But it, it's no, a it's silly funny. game. It's, it's funny. funny. It's over in five minutes. It it's doesn't a, even it, matter whether you win or lose. No. Like Every round is fun. Yeah. America, the trivia party game. I talked about this last week. This is the game that I pull out with the in-laws and with my own parents during uh, holidays. This is just a trivia game, but it's not, a lot of people hate trivia games because they don't want to feel dumb. This is a game that's not about what you know. It's about what you think other people know. And we determine Wits and Wagers is essentially the same Exactly. Game, yeah. Wits and Wagers is a favorite. Yeah. The next mine. is The Mind. This is a game where you are trying to uh, become psychic. <laughs> and you and somebody else are trying to read each other's minds and play cards the in the right in order. in its own category. It's a really unique game. Yeah. yeah. Paul it, loves it. Paul but a game keeps that can asking be me to play it. To anybody. Uh, Time's Up Total Title Recall. Uh, is basically if you've ever played the game celebrity this is a variation on charades uh, where you have to get somebody to say a certain title and then eventually you have to do it with less and less facility so now you have to do it without words now you have to do it without movement blah, blah, blah. that's the end a terrific it, game it's a very fun silly game you could literally teach this. this is a great game for children for anybody exit the game exit the game is a series of escape rooms in a box 
This is a great game for non-gamers. This is just, let's sit down and solve a game together, solve a puzzle, tell a story, escape room, but we can do it at the dinner table. And you know what? If people find it too hard, not fun, throw it in the trash. It costs $10. Not a big deal. You're meant to rip it up as you play. It's a one-time experience. Great. Lost Cities is the two-player game I would bring up for non-gamers. This is a Reiner Knizia game. This is my favorite Reiner Knizia game. This is just... Uh, set collection, putting putting numbers in the right order. And it's a great game that you can talk while you're playing it. Um, much in the same way that sort of like, you know, uh, a, a calm game of uh, any card game you'd play. It's just a very relaxing, calm, fun two-player game. Next is Skull. Skull is probably my favorite game on this whole list. It plays six players. This is just a game of lying. This yes. is the most simple, just I there's I've played this with I've never I've never taught this game and not had people buy it. A caveat: it is an elimination game, so yep. it, when you, you lose, bust, you can be you out. Can yeah. bust and but this is literally just a push your luck guessing game. How many tiles can I flip over, and how many people do I think we're telling the truth? Uh, very fun game. Last is No Thanks. No Thanks is a game that could fit in your back pocket. It's a tiny little game that uses tiddlywinks, and you are basically uh, as well pushing your luck here. And a uh, very simple, fun game. It's a great game to bring to a bar. It can, you know, you don't care. It costs $5, I think, on Amazon. You don't care if you spill some beer on it. Um, it's a silly little push your luck bidding game kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, those first are- date game? No. I don't think I don't think any of these would be great first games, but maybe second. Uh, but yeah, these are just ten games that I I I don't think you know. Maybe Splendor is the only one in here. You might get a little bit of an eye glaze over, but I think once a round goes by, they're fine. The rest of them, you're totally safe. There's gonna be no eye glazing on any of these. Yeah, Splendor and Lost City, both I would call them entry level games as opposed to necessarily just, just my take here, especially yeah. non gamers. Uh, I've been through what exactly what you're talking about here, which is um, playing games with family, yeah. relatives. Um, nice thing about this list is that these are all cheap games. Yeah, I, I think um, the most I recommend game on here would be twenty, thirty dollars, maybe America the Trivia Party game. I have probably purchased five or six copies of both Skull and Cockroach Poker at this point, and yeah. I take them when I know I'm going to see my family or relatives and play this game, and then just leave it with them. Yeah, um, and then they have it. And that's a great way to get people started. Uh, the one thing you were saying, like these things that these games have in common, um, these are all games where it's easy to, for people to kind of wander up, observe you playing, and immediately or very quickly understand. Sure. It. Yeah, you could learn it by watching it for five minutes. That's yeah. right. And so, like, I know if I'm at a family reunion or a big group of people, if, like, if I can get a few people to play, other people will wander up. They'll start to participate as observers, and then they'll want to play. Yep. Also, they don't take up a lot of space. They're all pretty compact, and you can play. You them don't anywhere. even need a table necessarily. Exactly, a coffee table is yes. fine, or an end mm-hmm. table, something like that. Yeah, and like I've played code names with uh, five people on each side. Like it, yeah. that's fine oh, too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the player count on that really is, is irrelevant. Um, you can all do it as teams. And that's it. That's our uh, that's our casual gamer episode. The casual gamer Dimitri asked us a whole bunch of questions. I hope you feel you have a uh, a broader understanding of, of of board games in general. I hope our yes, listeners very uh, much so. found it illuminating. I've given you ten games you can play with literally anybody. But of course, always remember golden rule: if they don't want to play games, don't play games with them. Um, or do play games, just not board games. Sure, play mind games. Don't yes. Do that either. 
I feel like we are two min- two hours and nine minutes in. It's a good time to wrap it up. Trey, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. I, I, I really, I, I do like these episodes. If you're listening and you and you like hearing multiples of our hosts on these shows, let me know. Um, and thank you for listening. Yeah, of course. Uh, Dimitri, it's been, it's been lovely. We'll see you next round. Maybe, uh, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen now? Maybe people just stop by. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's like cheers. Stop by and invited. Uh, you have been listening to Game Brain produced and edited by Matthew Robbins and special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. You might know him as Alfred on the show. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach me by email at Matthew at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrainPod. Thanks for listening. And go play some games with friends or go make some friends with games.